BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Once there was this podcast Wittering along every week about the pictures And Richard, Richard E. Grant You know the E The E it stands for emergency They couldn't quite explain it Always just said hello To Jason Isaacs Jason Isaacs <laughs> It's pretty good, eh? <laughs> Where did that come from? That's uh, from Liam McClare uh, who, whose email go starts, Dear Simon <laughs> and Mark. Mark. After hearing on last week's That's podcast good. your bad selves discussing the crash, discussing discussing. The crash <laughs> test dummies, I woke up this morning with a witter version buzzing around my head. The chorus lends itself beautifully to the actor everybody loves to greet. All the best from <laughs> Liam in Manchester. Obviously not that Liam in Manchester. Well, you don't know. Well, if, uh, in, it, it does say Liam McClare, so I'm assuming, okay. assuming that it's going to be him. So, Liam, thank you very much. Um, lots of crash des- test dummies on the show last week. And Chad Williams uh, says, Some many years ago I met Dan Roberts, bassist of crash test dummies, whilst out with mutual friends. Conversation turned to the naming of their big hit, which we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Dan revealed that the original chorus was a litany of obscenities. <laughs> really? <laughs> reflecting <laughs> the rather downbeat mood of the verses. This was later censored into the famous mm, <laughs> which we know. So, really, it's just birdsong. <laughs> you know that that's true of um, Good Times. You know, Good Times. Dun- oh, the Chic song. Yeah, that that wasn't Good Times. It was they were, they were refused entry to Studio 54. And... Uh, they went back to their apartment and they wrote this song that didn't say good times. It said something bad, off. Bad times. No. You know, no, it said, it said something else. It's something else. And, but then, because so now I can't ever hear it without thinking. Of you, know, you have just spoiled it for everybody. Why? Well, because now they're going to hear it. It's one of the most you know, definitive dance songs of the 70s. And Excuse me. They're going to have this story rude has, words in their head. This story has been on documentaries. I'm not the, the first person to put it out into the world. Well, I think you spoiled it for me anyway. Okay, well, I'm very sorry. How are you, by the way? It's very nice to see you looking very chipper with a kind of a very loose scarf. It's not a loose scarf. It's a scarf because it was cold. I thought it was very Richard E. Grant in honour of our guest, our second guest. Richard Emergency Grant. It's the kind of thing he would wear. It is, yeah. He used to rock a really impressive leather jacket. When when, when you and I were both at Radio 1 in a previous century... Mm -hmm. Richard Emergency Grant came on the show a couple of times and he would, you know, he would storm around in that. He had this great, almost like a flying jacket, you know, and he looked unbelievably cool and his hair... He could probably, you know, he, because he's aged so magnificently, he could probably get away with that now, don't you think? Yes, yeah. And you know, the other thing about him that I remember, I believe this still to be true, is that despite playing Withnall in Withnall and I, he neither drinks nor smokes and never has done... And so he had to do this, you know, the film that that was kind of, you know, made him a star in which he has to spend the whole film smoking and drinking. And he does neither of those two things. And, and this will come up later when, when he's on because he's again playing a loosh. A loosh, that's right. So, <laughs> so um, 
something which he manages to, it's called acting it's called acting yes, that's right. and he does it rather fantastically well so Richard E. Grant on later and Nicole Kidman uh, an email from John Page in the wonderfully named Tumble in Carmarthenshire Tumble T-U-M-B-L-E exactly that very good you imagine you're a tumbler if you come from Tumble thank you for the email John dear Julian and Sandy the attached is a clip from the opening minute of an episode from Beyond Our Ken from the 22nd of April, 1960, okay. recently rebroadcast on Radio 4 Extra. It shows that cinematic code violations haven't changed much in the last nearly 60 years. Here you are, two, three and threes. Ah. Oh, it's the big picture, Bert. Uh, can you see all that? Yeah. Got my shoes off. How about a nice orange? No, eh? no, no. Guess one of them sardine sandwiches. <laughs> Tarada. Where's the vinegar? Oh, I didn't bring none. <laughs> but I fancy some peanuts. <laughs> oh, oh, heck, I'll drop my sardine sandwich. <laughs> like a match, eh? <laughs> I can't see it. Here it is, just by that old ice cream carton and the lolly stick. Ah, ah, got it. <sighs> yeah, Bert. This fellow in front seems a bit annoyed about something. Oh, no. Keeps turning around and giving us a nasty glare. Well, that is an excerpt from Look Back in Anger. Another in series of a play to remember. Very good. So, John, thank you very much. So, in that, in that clip from 1960, shoes, shoes. off, first thing, sardine sandwiches. Sardine sandwich. I don't Rustling. think people take sandwich. You know, the, the snack problems are very rarely because someone has taken in a sandwich. I'd settle for a sardine sandwich, <laughs> but not in the paper bag that it was. Then peanuts in a rustly bag. Uh, and then... Then light. It was oh, a, match, a match rather than a mobile phone, but it's light, isn't it? Light pollution. All the same problems. I now, I will now have to... You've now spoiled the word sardine. You have to be sardine. Or the second time Randy refers to it as a sidearm sandwich. Do you ever... Do you, how often do you use the word sardine? doesn't come up very often. I like sardines. Shall we play sardines? Sardines, yeah. after dinner. No, but do you know, it, sardines are one of the healthiest. Uh, I don't. I'm not. A, I'm not a particularly fishy person. I have to say. Mm. <laughs> so says you. No, <laughs> I just don't. You know, and do I'm you sure not. I'm sure the health benefits are uh, are fine. But I believe that sardines are very good for you, and they. Have, I'm sure they are. And they, An oily, fi- oily An fish. Oily fish is indisputably very good for you. Yeah, and I think stocks of sardines are meant to be okay, aren't they? You're throwing that at me as though I might have checked that recently. Well, I'm sure that you'll come so up. What, with... So the question you want to know is, how are sardine stocks? stocks. Okay. Are sardine okay. stocks up? Are going to check that? Or down? Our, our top production team are even now on sardine.com. And it'll now come back that it's, you know, that it's endangered. And yes, I how dare how, you? How dare I? That is actually... Yeah, somehow racist in a way for you to <laughs> even suggest that we eat more sardines. <laughs> I have in a moment... Fish racism. Actually, I might do this now in case you run out of time. I yes. think this is an email that you will... I, you don't have to be worried about it, by the way. Okay. All right. I think you're going to not only like it, but you're going to want to actually take it home right. and show it to your family. Okay. Right. Yeah. This is, this is sounding odd already. Okay. <clears throat> okay. This is it. Although I was going to check the pronunciation of this place, where it's from. Just seeing if the puppet master might help me out. Okay, fine. I'm going to just go for it, and then you can correct me. You're making your your chair is making farty noises. D 
Dear Mark and Simon, I hope this is the right address for you both. I am Thomasin Mackenzie's mother. <gasps> there you go. That's not a bad reaction, is it? Oh, my word. Emailing from New Zealand while Thomasin and her dad, Stuart, are in Los Angeles for a couple of months. I can't imagine why. <laughs> Mark, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your amazing support of Leave No Trace oh. and of Thomasin's performance. It has been a pretty life-changing for her and for all of us and to have your appreciation of the film along the journey has been incredibly buoying and affirming that's boying, boying. I've never <laughs> seen that word it's, it's been, <laughs> you've been boying <laughs> to boy I suppose it is okay you've been boying best wishes to you both from Eteria no Eteroa that's better Aotearoa, I'm going to go for though okay. it's now being checked in New Zealand Okay. and it's from Miranda Thomasin Grandmother Kate Sarah and Davida. Oh, that's and, just brilliant. And there's a photograph of the family. Oh, the my guy, word. The guys in the family just aren't there at the moment, but there is a photograph of the family. Oh Whether they've God. taken that especially for you, I don't know, but let's... Let's, let's assume, assume that, that they, they have. They have. Oh. How pleased are you with that then? Well, that's just lovely. That it's just good to know that when we get behind a particular movie which is not the most obvious movie yes. to get behind. And incidentally, which, it has, which hasn't taken it to Oscar nominations. No, which is... Which is, which is appalling. Despite Barack Obama also following on That's after right, your yes, lead. Exactly. I, I wonder whether they wrote to... Sorry, I was in the middle of saying something, and then Robin said, Aratea Aurora. Say it again. Aratea Aurora. In New Zealand, with yeah. apologies to everyone from Aratea Aurora do you think, in New Zealand. Do you think Barack Obama got an email saying, I'm Thomas and Mackenzie's mum, thank you so much for liking the Probably. Project. Oh, that's just brilliant. What a lovely thing. That's, that's just fantastic. Did you know that Barack Obama, when he was much, much younger, was called Barry? Loads of people called him Barry, and then he decided to reclaim his original I name. I didn't know that. No. Himself Bar but Barry would, Obama. Yeah, he would have had sort of... It does make him sound even more Irish, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> You're Barry. He, you wouldn't elect. You wouldn't That's vote the, for someone called Barry. But they, it's in that in that movie, um, the one about him going out on the first date with Michelle. He's called Barack. He's not called Barry. I'm just saying. This is no, no, but that's it. so is that is that true? That's true. No, 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 no. That's absolutely true. Yeah, that's how he was referred. And to. you used to be called Peter from Germany. Well, there. Yeah, that was a strange, a strange moment. To me. And I used to be called Henry. This is weirder and weirder. <laughs> uh, John Hazelwood has been on and uh, emails, Dear Mr McGregor and Mr Nutkins, following on from your correspondence last year regarding certain filming activities in Centennial Park, Sydney. I, do you remember, so someone had spotted the fact that Peter Rabbit 2 is being filmed, filmed there, in, that's right. they yes. weren't quite sure. They weren't, they weren't sure how, how active to make their, their protests. <laughs> I received the attached letter through the post regarding filming in our street and a request to move the car out of the way for one Mr P Rabbit. I'm wondering if you could advise how we should proceed. And the... Uh, and we've got a copy of the email here. It says, filming proposed on Windmill Street, Miller's Point, Saturday, 2nd of March, 0500 hours to 1900 hours. This letter... I love the that you're just announcing this blithely to the I world. Think we can, I think we can okay, do that. Fine. PR Productions are proposing to film various scenes for the upcoming feature, Peter Rabbit 2... Uh, on these streets at this time. I tried to visit you today to discuss our proposal. We want to find alternative parking, uh, filming impacts and where you could where we could park your car. Anyway, so John says, I wonder if you could advise how to proceed. A disdainful look <laughs> through the window, maybe? <laughs> Should we form a protest group with other like-minded churchgoers gently tutting as we walk on by? Or something more drastic, such as ignoring it and going away for the weekend? 
<laughs> Plus, do we now have to sit through the film so that we can catch a glimpse of our house? Or is this an example of where watching the films on double speed is acceptable? Looking forward to your help in this matter. Well, I, I, you know... What should be, they do, Mark? Well, I, before, I, I advised a hard stare, didn't I? Mm. A, a hard Paddington essay. I think probably going away for the weekend and pretending that it's not happening is probably a, a good... Is that, is that a good sort of compromise? Though? I think it is, yes. John suggests that's the most drastic thing, ignoring it and going away for the weekend, but you think that's OK? Well, w- w- yes, because it just, it, you know, you don't want it, nobody wants any conflict. Also, let's bear in mind, it's entirely possible that the second... It's going to be very good. Yes, because never prejudge. It is always possible. And that said, when I was held up in London because Michael Bay was doing one of his Transformers things, that it might be quite good wasn't the thought that immediately flashed through my mind. No, I can imagine that that might be the case. Anyway, and you so know what? It wasn't. So the advice for everyone on Windmill Street, Miller's Point, mm-hmm. or anyone affected by the film of Peter Rabbit, a lot of good good stuff being filmed in Australia at the moment, by the way. Yeah. Really, really good stuff. I mean, you know, groundbreaking. I know, I yeah, know. I know, it's amazing. And the weird thing is that when that happens, I often find that the, the source material, it sort of draws attention to the source material. Like, for example, Leave No Trace is based on a, a book that I hadn't heard of until I, I saw the movie. Hmm. And then I went back and sought out the, the source material. And I wonder whether... You know, when really, really good stuff is done yeah. in uh, in Antipodean territories, yeah. you know, whether people might 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 go back to the... I'm, you know, I'm just thinking out loud. Robin and Sophie are looking at each other thinking, is, do we, we... What? What do we do about that? So I don't know. I think there's a danger of overstepping the censorious mark, Robin. I think we might have overstepped it. I think, you know... I don't know. He's just given a, giving us a cold stare. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> all right. Well, just 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 birdsong that last bit where we're raising into question the fact that you might have birdsong the previous bit, and then no one will be none the wiser. Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. Right. Anyway, so thank you very much indeed to John Hazelwood for sending that in, and the official advice, therefore, is to go, go away. To for go the away weekend. and maybe do some tutting. Yes, and you know, and perhaps, uh, but pro- but but on the other hand cooperate in any way that you can obviously yes. because you know because it might be a great it movie. might be who a knows? great movie it might, who knows it, they might have uh, snatched victory from the jaws of defeat that and defeat defined as a number one movie which was a huge smash hit around the world yes it's obviously that's, a that's slightly different defeat. definition of defeat. here's the defeat <laughs> the uh, well we've got a guestastic show on the way so here it comes On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. Now, Simon Mayo and Mark Hermode's film review. Fridays, 2 till 4. Text 85058. Text will be charged at your standard message rate. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the programme. Hey, Mark, you're very welcome to your own show here. I'm just welcoming you into into your front room. I don't think I'd realised until just now just how... Banging and and uh, that 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 jingle is. Dum, 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 dum. I never noticed that underneath. It's what got... have you been listening to then when that happened? happened no, no, I mean, it's been there, but I just it's never it's never occurred to me that it's actually a, a dancey beat. Well, what was the last dancey beat that you actually danced to then? Um, who's sorry now? Connie Francis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> was that 1956 <laughs> or something? Lovely for a little, you know. Waltz, really. A mellow moment. Uh, anyway, welcome to the programme. So we have Nicole Kidman in about half an hour. We have Richard E. Grant in about an hour and five minutes. Uh, and, Very specific. Yeah, well, Richard... About an hour and five minutes. And it's been a while, actually, since he interviewed Richard E. Grant, but he will be... So he's, he's so excited and happy. He's a very up kind of guy at the best of times, it seems to me, uh, on the basis of just a few uh, interviews. But when, at the age of 61, 
you get an Oscar nomination for the first time. He's understandably the man of the moment. Yeah, he went in, when I used to do the Radio One film program ages and ages ago. He did. He was the voice of the of the of the jingles because he came in one day and I just to, to, to be interviewed and I said, "Would you mind? I've written a whole bunch of things that I'd like you to say that we can use forever for free." And he went, "Fine." So there was just what him. kind of thing did you have to get him to say? I want news. I want it here and I want it now. Oh, I see. Well, that's very much in keeping and in character. Exactly. So it was all, you know, it was all things like that. And, here, here. and if you have any questions for Richard E. Grant, then uh, Richard Emergency Grant, obviously, as we call him, though he will be completely baffled by that, to be fair. Turn your phone off. I know. I don't know what that was. It was just a vibrate. It could have been the printer. Yeah, it wasn't the printer. It wasn't the printer. No, the printer sounded be. very different. It was your phone. In fact, a PRG Beverly sends an email that says... PRG? Hello. Yeah, hello to my favourites. Check out Wednesday's Today programme with Michelle Hussein for more phantom printing. Apparently, halfway through that, oh, really? Michelle uh, was talking, and her printer fired off. I don't know whether it was James Kumarasamy again <laughs> sending stuff through. He tweeted later saying he was excited to be a part of the show, <laughs> wondered if he'd get some kind of nomination. So but the press supporting the printer, printer. Is, ju- is just here. There is some stuff in it. You know, there is a script on the printer. It has just arrived. And what's it for? It is for... Uh, okay, hang on. This is it's hard to tell. It's a it's called the big debate, I think. The okay. presenter says, Thanks to Harps and the Breakfast team. Good morning, it's ten o'clock. Oh, it's Asian Network. Asian Network's big debate. That's what it is. Right. So, anyway. so who knows what's gonna come why out on the print Why does it come out now? I mean I know. Anyway, so anyway, so where were we? Yes, that's that that's quite Do you ever bad. have that thing if you send somebody a text and they don't get it? And it must sit in space or something. Yes. And then like four days later it turns up. Yes, I think it's internet congestion. I think I think that's what it is. So okay. everything everything uh, gets all clogged up. I think that's the official technical term. And it, and it so it waits in space. Is that right? Something like that. Okay. Uh, someone will explain precisely what happens and okay. where and where it does actually. Sit. Anyone it probably r- sits on a server somewhere. Did anyone write in with an explanation of, of secondhand air in Jim's? No, 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 fine. So I was right in that no, case. No one, no one's, no one has corrected no one's... you. So I, I, you know, I'd stick with that if I, if I were you. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you just have to be careful. You know, you might print something out, and it just as in W1A could turn out anywhere in the BBC. Yeah, exactly. So we'll await with great excitement. Rob Rowden in Ontario, in Canada. Dear Simon and Kermode Funkel, my wonderful English wife, who was originally from Margate in Kent, is confused by the use of the word pants. When I first heard the term uh, on your highly regarded show, I naturally turned to my British-born wife and life mate and asked, what is pants? (laughs) To my great surprise, she said she'd never heard of it. We had a lengthy discussion about, firstly, my wonder that she did not know what it is, and secondly, why I should apologise for my condescending manner when she informed me that she'd never heard of this term. Could you kindly explain, meaning give an exact definition of what you mean by pants? I also recently heard it on Coronation Street, and I'm worried that it's no longer a current buzzword that I can impress my colonial friends and neighbours with. Tickety-tonk and so on. And the reason, the reason that they've written in asking you is that you are cited in the dictionary. In the Oxford English Dictionary, I am credited with sort of using pants as a, a, as a slang term, which basically, Rob, just means something that's rubbish. Yeah. I mean, it's not hugely insulting. It's pants short for underpants, yes. which normally, really, I think, is for male undergarments. Yes, and not, not pants like in America where pants means trousers. trousers. No, this is underpants, and it's just a way of saying something is a bit rubbish. It's yeah. not terrible. It's yeah. not awful. It's just it's a, a bit little pants. bit. It's a little bit pants. So I think <laughs> that is specifically what it means, and I hope that was helpful. We're just here to uh, public service. The thing I like about pants is that it, it it's a very unthreatening word. It's not aggressive. It's not. 
It's not, you know, horribly damning. It is, as you say, it's 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 just a bit rubbish. It's gentle, yeah. is it not? Yeah. Frankie Andrews. Dear he who is polite to Sophie and he who points it out. Very good. I am a senior at my school in Baltimore, Maryland. But then he adds, it's pronounced like Marilyn with a D on the end and not Maryland, which makes it, according to Frankie, Maryland. So he's from Baltimore, Maryland. Really? Frankie could be a she. But anyway, Frankie Andrews says, you don't pronounce it Maryland, you pronounce it Maryland. We're talking about... Okay, well, I've always, no, well, I mean, I, well, know, Baltimore I, is Baltimore, isn't it? So yes. Baltimore, Maryland. I've always said Maryland, but yeah. Anyway, you'll see the point, Frankie. Yeah, okay, fine, fine. I often listen to you uh, on my drive home from school with the favourite in cinemas. The last few weeks have seen the return of Simon's mispronunciation of names. Specifically, I refer to Yorgos Lanthimos, to which Simon often adds an R yes. to create Lanthimos. Yes, because that's how he likes to be. <laughs> That's what his friends call him. Despite the fact that I think this mispronunciation is done to wind up Mark, surely not, it got me thinking that uh, about an amendment to the ever-expanding Wittertainment database of illnesses. Perhaps if a member of the public on a plane suddenly feels unexpl- uh, an unexplained urge to watch the lobster or dog tooth, they could be said to be suffering from altitude-adjusted lanthrimosity syndrome. syndrome. That's Great. That's very, very good. And then Frankie says... a long says, time coming. But cue excessively banging and flapping of hands. <laughs> anyway, I felt proud of myself for this pun. If you read this out, could you give a finely aged vintage what's up my father to my dad, David, who introduced me to the show? So there you go. Altitude adjusted lanthrimosity <laughs> syndrome uh, is hereby added. <laughs> thing. Anyway, smart people add an R. Why, why did you start adding an R? I've got no idea. Probably, as Frankie says, just to annoy me, just to be annoying. Okay, that's fine. It also flows more. I think lanthrimos sounds sounds better. Yorgos lanthrimos sounds a little bit more staccato. And okay, and and Maryland, he's saying then. Yes, apparently. Well, um, someone else will, I'm sure, will will jump in on this. But he says it's Maryland, and I've never heard it pronounced like that at all. No, me neither. And I've been to, I've been to what I thought was Maryland, but. But then, having said that, I, maybe I didn't ever go up to anyone and say, hello, how's Maryland? Yes, how do you pronounce this state that we're in? Yes, that's right. Anyway. And they said, a bit rattled. So uh, if you can, uh, if, if, if anyone feels they can, joke. they can help us out, that'd be, that would be extremely good. Uh, box office top 10 uh, at 12, Beautiful Boy. It, Beautiful Boy is such a strange one because it has produced such divisive responses. I mean, I, I it did... I did find it affecting and touching whilst recognising all the, the problems that it has. It, it's based on two memoirs and it certainly sees the story much more from the point of view of the father than of the son. And obviously because I am of an age when, you know, I'm on the outside looking in because it's a film about addiction and that sort of thing, which is not something I have any experience of. Um, so maybe it worked sort of better for me and maybe if you're, you know, if, if you're, you're somebody who knows the area more you'd you you could see the the melodramatic contrivances of it but i thought i mean i think my main issue was that the the music choices are very very on the nose there is an awful lot of the music telling you what's going on and there is one scene um this was pointed out by simran hans in, in her review there is a scene in which the father goes into the room and into a room and finds a book that his son has been drawing in and is literally like the idiot's guide to where the narrative is at the moment you know, drawings of sort of, I am feeling like this and this is why I am doing this. And this is, and that, that is, that is a bit creaky, but it did affect me. Um, 
an anonymous email. Uh, Dear fake professor and fake doctor, yeah. I am a drug addict. I, last night I saw Beautiful Boy right. and I want to emergency mail you okay. to give a different perspective. I've seen negative reviews criticising the film for not being subtle. I agree. It's not a subtle film. Yes, we're on Drugs that. are not subtle. The problems of living with an addiction are not subtle. They are not nuanced. The film resonated so clearly with me, I found Timothy Chalamet's performance completely real. It's great that the film acknowledges relapses are part of the process of recovery. Not enough films on this subject address this. What was best about the film was seeing it from the father's perspective. I am the same age as Timothy Chalamet, who was on uh, Graham Norton, and they addressed the, the issue of his, whether you say Timothy or Timothy. Oh, OK. And he said, it is Timothy, but if you say Timothy, so that's fine. Perfectly fine. And not in all too, uh, and not in an all too different situation from the characters in the movie because I'm the same age as Timothy. It broke my heart to see what Nick's dad goes through and to think what I must be putting my parents through. To realise that the parents are giving nothing but their love, and when I can't see it that way, it's simply because they are not walking on the same path as me, so they cannot understand, yet they try all the same. I am not a man who is known for crying in films, but Beautiful Boy broke me. The film is not for everyone, but as someone who is currently living through similar experiences to the film, I found it to be utterly authentic, an utterly authentic portrayal of a life-altering disease. And then he has a nice paragraph at the end about how he likes the programme. So well, thank you, anonymous email. Yeah, I mean, what a lovely email. And thank you for writing in and speaking so honestly about it. I mean, it, you know, it, it reduced me to floods of tears as well. And, and as I said, I, despite the criticisms, that, you know, I, I, I did find myself profoundly moved by it. But that's very interesting because actually that directly contradicts what I said about, uh, you know, perhaps if you, if you know the subject well, then perhaps it looks different, but that is um, that is an email by somebody who does know the subject well and describes the film as doing telling the story. Yeah. And I like that idea that you know the film isn't subtle, but nor, nor is the subject matter. Uh, Mark Dunford in Crawley, um, an intimate, grueling, brilliantly acted drama. Uh, are the words he uses for Beautiful Boy, Timothy Chalamet will get all the plaudits for his portrayal of Nick, but I thought Steve Carell's understated, heartbreaking performance as his dad David was the standout. Having recently binge-watched the US version of The Office, uh, I can't believe it's the same actor. Also, I thought there was a clear comparison to A Star Is Born, even down to the location of David Chef's home. Uh, not an enjoyable watch, but worth it for the two central performances. Uh, thank you, Mark, for that. So that's at number 12. Yes. Spider-Verse, into the, Spider-Man Man into, into the, the Spider-Verse at 10. Um, really good fun. It's done really well. It's... Um you know, it's it's clearly a film which has found its audience and has won the pl plaudits it deserves. Uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet is at number nine. How many weeks has Ralph Breaks the Internet? I mean, it's, it's still hanging on in there. Again, you know, it's not as good as the first, but it's it I, I, it passed the time and I thought it was fun. Um, but it has had a very long run. It is clearly, you know, done well with its audience. Oscar-nommed Bohemian Rhapsody. See, great. I... I, I like him. Yesterday, I had the uh, pleasure of I met Rami Malek before, but I met Brian May and Roger Taylor for the first time um, because I was, you know, I was. A, you must have met them before because yeah. you were at Radio One and everything. And they're, you know, and they're they're very nice. Nice they? guys, yeah. And um, there was that we had a sort of a bit of a discussion about about what happened when the first film first came out and the initial critical response to it, and then the response of the of the audience. And I said, "That's Roger Taylor." I said, "You know, there's the bit in the film." When everybody gives you a really hard time for writing, uh, I'm in love with my car, you know, 
because I always thought that was a perfectly fine song because I was whatever it was, 12 years old. I said, was it really like that? And Brian May went, step away. He said, Steve, you do, you do not want to get into this. He said, Let, believe me, you are, you are, this, that is a very, very raw wound. Apparently the band were very unkind about I'm in love with my car. Yeah. Well, it is a bit rubbish. It's not rubbish. It is in comparison with the other stuff. It does have the line, string back gloves in my automo love, which is... Mm-hmm. which is, I rest my cat. Also, it says... Um, uh, Told my girlfriend I'd have to forget her, rather buy me a new carburetor. Mm-hmm. There you go. Well, I, I, I present no more evidence. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, Bo Rap is at eight. Bumblebee's at seven. The best of the Transformers movies, um, which it, it sounds like damning with faint praise. So let's go further than that. A very entertaining and enjoyable movie with a large amount of CGI, but done very well. The interaction between the CGI and the physical uh, characters is played out I think at just the right tenor and you realise that because it you know because it's a bit like Herbie because it's a bit like the love bug it's basically a relationship between a young woman and her car and the car is the transformer but it it gets the level of spectacle right in the other Transformers movies quite apart from all the other things that I don't like about them there was always a thing that everything was just too massive and too you could never really figure out what was going on screen. And in this, the, the the image is much clearer. It's much more organised. And it's the whole film is much better directed. And, of course, it's a better script. Aquaman is at number six. Well, it is all over the place. And there is no... There's, there's no question that it that it's messy and silly. And I never believed for one minute that they were underwater. They might as well have been in outer space. And... But the thing that's slightly charming about it is in a world of very dark comic strip uh, movies, it's very colourful. And I I was reminded of the fact that my sister, when she was first taken to see Mary Poppins, incidentally, Aquaman is not on a par with Mary Poppins. Aquaman is kind of rubbish. Mary Poppins is kind of practically perfect. But in the moment when they go up on the up on the roof um, and they're stepping in time, and the fireworks get, you know, the fireworks get shot over the rooftops. My sister stood up and went, oh, pretty. And there were a couple of minutes in Aquaman when I felt like doing the same thing. Other than that, it's it's all over the place and it's rubbish. Uh, the favourite is at number five. So ever since last week's broadcast, in which you managed to to put together um, the, fa- the, 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 the... It was the sound of Windy Miller... Well, it, 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 first of all, it was the soundtrack, then Windy Miller yep. at your suggestion, then Bumu Yata Tata at my brother's suggestion, yeah. then uh, Jazz Pigeon. Jazz Pigeon, that's involved. right, yeah. So ever since then, I have realised that, you know, like you said, I, I spoilt... Um, I spoiled something by I, sp- I spoiled good times by Chic yes. by pointing out that actually it wasn't the original lyric wasn't good times it was something much more aggressive than that. Well, I think that you've officially spoiled the favourite for me now because whenever I see a poster for the favourite and I like the favourite very much, good terrific forms of the rest of it, Whenever I see a poster for it, all I can think of is that mashup, yes, of, boom, and everything else, and Dave on. Brubeck in there as well, yeah. And Bumu Yatta Tatar. Which was a work of genius. Nothing to do with me. It was entirely down to the engineering staff who were on the who, show. Who, who did it rather brilliantly. It was Ben, the studio manager, I believe. Ben, the studio manager, got that all together. Okay. Uh, Flora, age 21 and 11 twelfths. I just got home from seeing The Favourite, which was incredible. I had a feeling after I left, which I realised I also felt after First Man, right. which felt odd considering how different they are. I realised, however, that the reason I felt similarly about them was the lack of laddie 
Esque masculine presence. That's how Flora yeah. describes it. Or maybe what I should call toxic masculinity. In the favourite, the women are the ones financing war, manipulating each other, and being complex. Parliamentarians aren't emasculated, but instead, uh, uh, instead, a, a queen or Emma Stone, a, a masculine presence that is comical, strong, but no more comical or strong than the queen or Emma Stone. Similarly, first man was deliciously missing the rooms full of shouting, jubilant men toasting their own scientific successes. It was full of introspection. I have personally absolutely loved so many films this year that have been wholeheartedly feminist, by which I mean giving us complicated and incredible female characters, but also films that have given me male characters that aren't simply bloodthirsty war heroes and astronauts only going to space to birdsong off the Russians. Thank you, Flora. And, of course, worth pointing out, in the case of First Man, in the case of um, The Favourite, three astonishing performances, in the case of First Man, Claire Foy is so much, you know, central to that narrative because, you know, what she what she does is you sort of see what's happening to him through her because he is so uncommunicative, because he is so kind of um, sealed off from the world as a result of his grief. And it's through her that you get to understand you know what it is that his character's going through. Uh, so the favourite is at five. Mary Poppins Returns is at number four. And I think that both you and I have been completely won over by it. Have you seen it twice now? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I Fine. saw it twice over Christmas. And the song's still totally oh, yeah, and I've, got, I've got the soundtrack on my fruit-based device, and, which I listen to fairly regularly. And we had a little discussion about when you said to Emily Blunt, would there be a, could there be another one? Well, she but, certainly sounded up for it. Yeah, and... Um, and, and you're, you were slightly anxious because having having got away with it, having made a, a sequel to Mary Poppins, which you know, which could so easily have not been good, your feeling was a little bit like, quit while you're ahead. I think so. yes, I think so. I don't think it's something that you could turn around in another couple of years because it's been successful. Therefore, obviously, the studios are thinking, can we make another one? But songs that strong don't just come along that quickly. No, but I, I, think I, would, it, I would have thought. I think it's pretty much guaranteed there's going to be another one, don't you think? Well, as long as uh, another quiet place comes first, then no. And, and she and uh, Emily Blunt did suggest she, that that uh, was happening. No, she didn't suggest it. She absolutely said for sure. She so. said it is definitely happening. Right uh, Stan and Ollie's at number three. Richard Griffiths, but probably not that one. Dear Comedy Duo, after countless years attending the church, I am finally compelled to disagree with the good doctor. Oh, really? On emotional grounds. Okay. Stan and Ollie did not leave me with a spring in my step. On the contrary, I was on the verge of blubbing and beyond from the first minute until well after the final credits. Maybe it's... Being a male in my 60s, whose mortality has been somewhat in focus of late, but watching the inevitable end of two greats who knew their time was up had me in pieces. Just about the saddest film I've ever seen, or at least the saddest I've ever been after a film. I was certainly a fine mess. P.S. I loved it. But anyway, okay. you loved it in a feeling sad kind of way. Okay, I think this is interesting because one of the things that I said about the film was that it gets the balance between, um, between sugar and salt, between you know, bitter and sweet, just right. And if you're if you're a fan of Laurel and Hardy, and actually if you're a fan of an awful lot of that, you know, early slapstick uh, cinema humour, all the best stuff works with a very, very strong element of pathos. It's not just, um, you know, knockabout jokes. The jokes work and the jokes are funny because behind them there is this element of pathos. I mean, I remember it's, sometimes it can, it can sort of tip over into mawkishness. There was always the accusation that Chaplin was mawkish in a way that, that Buster Keaton wasn't. And I remember seeing One Good Tea, One Good Tea, One Good Turn, the Norman Wisdom film, which was basically like just kind of rip your heart out and, and, and ring it. But I thought what the film did, what Stan and Ollie did that was so clever 
was it mirrored almost perfectly in its tone the balance of happy and sad, the balance of laughter and tears. And I always cite that, you know, that, that thing from Four Weddings, laughter and tears, something for everyone, you know, as a joke, because actually it is the, it is the most complicated balance. It is the, it, there's like rocket science involved in getting laughter and tears, something for everyone. Uh, Mary Queen of Scots is at number two. Roz in Northwich. I uh, saw Mary Queen of Scots yesterday and on the whole really enjoyed the film and the performances of Margot Robbie and Saoirse Ronan until the last 20 minutes. Right. The staging of the meeting that never happened as they wander among the bedsheets is incredibly silly and the dialogue <laughs> is cringeworthy. I realise that we talked about this last week and I don't, it's not really a spoiler because it has no, been much No, yes, yes, it, yes, it has. I realise it was added for dramatic effect but I felt it actually detracted from the film and it would have been better if they'd stuck to historical fact. In this scene, all they do is perpetuate the usual toxic narratives of female relationships where one, Elizabeth, is in quotes, jealous of a younger, prettier woman, and the other Mary triumphantly, uh, and the other Mary triumphantly rubs her fertility in a childless woman's face and declares her inferior. Given that this didn't actually happen, I felt that in a film about two powerful women, this was hugely reductive, undignified, and not particularly feminist. Um, okay, uh, my main problem with that sequence was that it was the it was the moment at which the film seemed to be most like a theatrical production. And of course, Josie Rourke comes from a background of theatre and often it's making that leap from theatre into the screen, you, you, you know, you, stuff feels stagey. And that was the one moment that I thought that it did. It was, there was, I think you felt the same way. There was, you know, too many billowing wedges. I didn't mind the scene itself. Um, I had the great honour of meeting um, Alex Byrne, who's the costume designer, nominated costume designer, um, because the costumes for Mary Queen of Scots are terrific. And I said, is it the case that people notice the costumes in period dramas when they don't know? She said, that is, you know, that is the thing. And we were also talking about how, how, over and over again, if you've done your work well on a film, critics won't notice it. So if you've done great editing, no one says great editing. If you do, in a way, if you do the, you know, the, the, the perfect job of designing the film, no one says great design. They just think the film is when the film is. And the UK number one is Glass. Uh, hey! Paul Bernardi, age 51 and a third, grade four trumpet and number one policeman in the 1979 school production of The Wind in the Willows. Thank you, Paul. I like the way Glass built upon its predecessors and it was also great to see how James McAvoy was able to build on his character from Split. I think he managed to get all 24 characters in this time uh, and the way he managed to switch effortlessly between them was truly impressive. Um... Beth Friend. I must defend this film after overhearing someone describe it as a pile of birdsong. But not me, because I liked it. To add insult to injury, the culprit misquoted the film's title as Glasses. I mean, really, I was seeing Glasses. For me, Glass delivers <laughs> thrills and wry chuckles in equal measure. Uh, Shyamalan breathes life into action scenes with inventive camera shots unusual points of view and lashings of tension. And James McAvoy. McAvoy's breakfast cereal variety pack of a performance is an absolute treat. That's a lovely phrase. I couldn't help tittering with excitement whenever he was on screen. Give that man an Oscar. Jackson Willis provide menacing foils for McAvoy, but Paulson sadly pulls the short straws the woefully regular straight man to the superheroes. Besides the, that quibble, I'm struggling to understand the haters out there. Glass is worth seeing for the fairground flashback alone. I've not squirmed so much in a cinema seat since mm. Emily Blunt descended her basement steps in a quiet place. Yes. It's interesting because, um, you know, I like the film very much and I was surprised because I hadn't been crazy about Split, although I did, I did think Unbreakable was uh, Shyamalan's best film. And 
and I and I liked it, and there were some very very sniffy reviews. But if you go to the to the YouTube uh, page where the, where the, the our review of the film is up, it is amazing how many comments underneath it are from people saying, "Yeah, absolutely, it's really good." What you know, what is everyone else's? What's everyone's problem? Also, briefly related to that on last Sunday it was the London Critics Circle Awards, and I was presenting um, best film and. Anya Taylor-Joy was there. And Anya Taylor-Joy, who, of course, is in Glass and is in The the Witch, or The Vavitch, as it got called, because you remember the way they wrote it was with two Vs. So I met Anya Taylor-Joy, which was also very good. Did you have a, a? Did you look fantastic? Were you super dressed up? And well, I was dressed like this. I mean, I looked like you okay, know, I looked like an old fat undertaker. That, okay. You know, so that's great. But I did say I'm a big fan of the Vavitch. Actually, I did. I said I'm a big fan of the witch. I stopped myself from saying the Vavitch. Two thirty-seven. Nicole Kidman on the way. Then Richard E. Grant. Frankie Andrews earlier was talking about Baltimore in Maryland. Yes. You don't say Maryland. She says you say Maryland. Maryland. And this was news to us. Yeah, completely. But then again, we have never been very good at pronunciation. But hey, look. In the same way that you can be in a movie or direct a movie and still not re- not be the expert about what it's about maybe frankie isn't the right person just cause, just because he or she lives in maryland doesn't mean they know how to pronounce it but now you've changed your pronunciation because you didn't say lives in maryland henrik yolding says i grew up in the midwest of america i yep. can confirm maryland is a proper pronunciation of maryland maryland, maryland. i was ra- this is lawrence i was raised just north of the state never heard it pronounced other than maryland okay uh, this one says, apparently, according to a close Marylander, presumably Marylinder, it's pronounced Merlin, like Merlin, but with an Irish accent. Merlin. Merlin. <laughs> that was terrible. It was. <laughs> but, but what can you do? Just working with the material. Yeah. But that, but so see, that reminds me of one of my favourite things in, in the original Mary Poppins, is that uh, when she says... Look, Mayor Poppins, it's a mare go round. Really? With literally no R's in it. Look, Mayor Poppins, it's a mare go round. From the deep south. <laughs> uh, just ahead of Nicole, an email from Kimberly. Dear Trip, a little light and fantastic. fantastic. Yes. Uh, this past Wednesday, I was fortunate enough to attend a taping of the BBC's 20th anniversary special of Talking Movies. Oh, yeah. Despite the accolades suggesting it was the UK's flagship film programme, I know that this is not the case. Hashtag Wittertainment Forever. What is Talking Movies? It's on the, the BBC News uh, thing. It's been going for ages. It's very good. Never seen it. It's very, very, very good. Don't care. But in truth, that is not the purpose of this correspondence. You see, there was a special guest for said 20th anniversary, none other than Sir Chuckles himself, Kenneth Branagh. It was a joyous moment when he took to the small stage and proceeded to delight us with various showbiz anecdotes, charm us with his roguish smile (laughs) and respond well to his audience of admiring fans. As the minutes ticked by, I found myself waiting with bated breath for that magical sound that titillates mind and ensnares the senses. And then it happened. A lushed-up woman in the audience accidentally kicked her champagne glass on the floor. A lushed-up woman? Yeah. (laughs) So Kenneth tracks them, I think. A lushed-up woman on the audience floor. Uh, she kicked her champagne glass over, shattering it, and the, uh, and the silence, and Sir Ken let out a heartwarming one of these. <laughs> Do you have that again? Though, <laughs> Though most gave a casual lull, I found myself overcome, for all I could hear in my head was the compilation of... Uh, his and Tom Courtney's infectious chuckles. In turn, I became the crazy lady in the audience, apparently <laughs> laughing at nothing. So this is what Kimberly was thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Thank you, Kimberly, for reminding us of that. Who put that together? Uh, Fantastic. Young Simon, who works yes. on the show. It's all our own work. Very good. The interview wrapped. Cheers and claps were aplenty. Oh, apparently it was a listener, was it? I thought it was Simon. He claimed all the credit. No, it was a listener. Who a listener, OK. So thank you, listener. Thank you, listener. So the interview wrapped and cheers and claps were aplenty and my friend and I made our way to the exit. My night was made, or so I thought. Like a scene from a movie, the elevator was held at the last moment and none other than Sir Ken breezed in and literally stood Next to me, me. I was shooketh. Uh, we were sharing the same air. But like any good Wittitaney, I kept quiet, not wishing to disturb him, and soaked in the moment. It was all over in a flash, though like a true gentleman, he held the door open for me before exiting the building. We exchanged pleasantries and then both disappeared into the night. Brilliant. I very much look forward to Mark's review of All Is True and hopefully you'll give the chance, get the chance to interview Sir Ken again, if for no other reason than to update his chuckle of record for the archives. <laughs> He's welcome, as he knows... Any time. Uh, it's 2.41. Uh, this is Five Live. Nicole Kidman has a new film out this week. It's called Destroyer. And we'll hear my conversation with Nicole in a moment. First of all, a clip from the film. Here she is as Detective Erin Bell. I'm the one who's bad. It's not you. All right. I'm sorry for lying to you. I lied, I stole, and worse. You can be better than me. And that's a clip from Destroyer, and I'm delighted to say that we've been joined by Nicole Kidman, who is the star of the movie and is in every shot, I think, pretty much. Hello, Nicole, how are you? I'm good. When you walked in, I have to say I was sort of reassured to see that you're looking well, <laughs> having, having just seen the film, you know. Why don't you tell the story of the film, and then we'll talk about what you look like, because it is astonishing. So tell us about Erin Bell. And the film is about a woman who's on this path of, I suppose, atonement but she's a cop she was an undercover cop when she um started um when she was very young and she made some bad choices and you see where that's led her so i play her younger and then i play her 17 years later it's a definite stretch for me but i i wanted to jump off the cliff and try something sort of dangerous and bold and and work with the director who's her name's Corinne Kasama. She directed a film called Girl Fight, which was very kind of groundbreaking for its time. And I just wanted to, um, I'm always trying to find new places to go. You know, it's obviously in that genre mould, but usually these these characters are played by men as well. Yes, I think that was one of the first things I thought after about 10 or 15 minutes. This is the kind of role which two years ago would have gone to a guy. Yeah. A grizzled alcoholic yes. cop on the path to ruin, that's yeah. going to be a man, isn't it? Yeah. When you read the script, what did, <laughs> what did you think? I mean, there's a very female essence to her in the sense of a lot of her choices are made because she gets pregnant and she's a mother and then the emotional core of it is about a mother trying to say, you can have a better life than mine. 
don't make the choices I've made, which I think is actually a very relatable theme. This is to her 16-year-old daughter. <clears throat> yeah, she now has a 16-year-old daughter. You see her when she um, discovers that she's going to have a child when she's um, the undercover cop and she and her uh, lover are together then. And then as the film unwinds, it's also got an unusual twist to it, which I love. It does, which we Love a twist. Which we, yeah, which we can't, can't which, reveal. Which we can't talk about. But just to go back to the very beginning, when we mm. see Erin Bell... Mm. In the we like the first five ten minutes of the movie. What is what does she look like? What do we make of what we see? I think you see a woman who's just been destroyed by her past and um, physically, emotionally, spiritually, she's there's just wreckage. And I think that's it's a fantastic thing to get your teeth into as an actor. But it's a really tough place to go and have it vibrate and be real. And for it to be coming out through your pores, you know. And we were in the process of sort of very scrappy filmmaking where it's the streets of L.A. It's very tough. It's a tough film. When you saw the script for the Mm. first time... I actually cried. I cried because I read it and I didn't know where it was going. And then when it finally hit me at the end, it was very emotional. I just found it very... Where it takes you off guard. It's like, what? I I didn't expect to feel that. That's probably because of the relationship between the mother and the daughter. There's a fantastic image in it where she's sort of carrying her daughter on her back. And I find that... um, And her daughter's four years old and they're lost... And she's sort of trying to trek her way through the snow in the woods. Did you know how far this role would take you? I mean, you said it was a stretch. Was did you? Were, <laughs> no. Did you know how, quite what a stretch it was going to be? When you I said didn't. Yes? I didn't. I'm not sure if I would have said um, yes, knowing the, what it. I, I have not been in every frame of a film for a very long time. I mean, so many of the choices I make in life, if I actually knew what it was going to be I probably wouldn't have jumped in so part of my flaw and my virtue is that I just jump into things I have an enormous amount of trust as a person when you when you're on the show four years ago for uh, before I go to go to sleep you were talking then about taking risks right so would you say this this (laughs) this film is a risk I don't see it as a risk isn't that funny I just see it as a as a fantastic um character and something that um and the opportunity to support a female director and to you know have a female at the center of a story which is always good probably if I step out of myself and look at it I go yeah it's a it, there is risk there but I'm up for the challenge I'm always up for things I have that kind of let's go nature. Kerry Mulligan was on the show a few weeks ago talking about wildlife right. and and she was talking then about how rare it is still such to see. a brave actress yes. I saw her on stage in New York in uh Girls and boys. She's right, fa- she is. She is fantastic. Yeah. But she. She was saying how because the character that she plays there is she's a a woman with flaws. Mm. Very obviously a woman with flaws. And mm. she said it's still not that common. And and if the flaws are really pronounced, then people don't like it. So she was just saying, you know, it's refreshing to do mm. that. Mm. I'm guessing that's kind of the same reaction that you had playing Erin Bell. I think I've probably played flawed women my whole life. What does that say about me? Yeah, but that's human beings, isn't it? I mean, there's. it would be lovely if we could just look at everything with rose-coloured glasses and, and have everything be shiny and beautiful. But I think it almost brings us closer when we allow human beings to struggle and to show all the facets of their nature. And um, I think it also makes people feel not so alone, or hopefully it does. It certainly makes me feel that way. This is the kind of role that you take home? Just, yeah. It seems like she seems like mm. such a heavy yeah. character, and you 
disappear into this role. In fact, I would think, you know, if someone walks in after 10 minutes and they start watching, they might not, for a while, they might not even recognize that it's Nicole Kidman in this movie. I mean, I think that's the extent to which you disappear. Uh, into this but she has mm. a lot in her head you know mm. we and we are traveling this road uh, with her and mm. I'm not an actor at all but I imagine it's the kind of role that's difficult just to shrug off when you when you go home there's certain roles Big Little Lies was another one where it just seeps into your consciousness and it is just there with you until it's done and that definitely happened playing this role and it was a it, it's like you're carrying the weight of her. It's like having a monkey on your back in a way. Reminded me. But I'm willing to do that. I mean, that's what you do as an actor. Not always. Sometimes there's a different approach and direct, all directors require a different set of skills and an emotional commitment to things. But this particular role, the only way I could do it really was to stay in character because otherwise I felt like I was performing, which is... And that so you stayed in did character. not feel I did on the set, yeah. Not not when I went home and, and that, not that would have to been the point people calling me Erin, but in terms of it just always being there and being a part of my world and my existence for that period of time, yes, I didn't I couldn't just walk away so as I could say when I was doing Paddington. <laughs> yes. Well in fact when we when, when you just on that, when when we spoke on that slight just slight change of Subject, but as you mentioned, Paddington, in that interview that we did a few years ago, you said, you know, you did it and you wanted your kids to be able to go and see it. And then you realised that they couldn't actually go and see it because of the knife throwing and so on. Have they seen it yet? I they have seen it. They have. They were mortified that I was trying to hurt the bear. Forgiven? <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, the children of people who are actors, or they see a lot, and the, I think their imaginations really get stoked very early. So they now create stories, and I think there's been a, a, a villain in one of their small films who throws a few knives. Obviously, pretend knives. Obviously, <laughs> pretend knives. Do they get to the see- villain's always the fun one? Do they get to see as Aquaman? My daughters say they haven't seen Aquaman yet, but they will. They were on the set watching Aquaman um, shoot, which was. Um, fantastic for them you know they got to see how the special effects and and learn I mean a lot of what they're um, privy to is is all the behind the scenes and and so they have a lot of knowledge now of filmmaking you've mentioned uh, a couple of times the the director of destroyers uh, Karen Kusama yeah. and you you have set yourself a goal for the number of women directors that you that you want to work with, as I understand it, and you seem to be keeping up that that tally. I just feel that there's not enough of them. I mean, that statistically, it's proven, and to help make a change with that, it requires people, particularly people like me, who can sometimes say, "This person should direct this," or "I'm going to support this film," or "I'll make this film." Um, because it's being directed by a woman. Obviously, I have to believe in the material and the character and want to do it. It can't just be for the sake of, of that alone. But I would very much like to see the statistics change in my lifetime where it becomes more even. I mean, it really is. I think it's still only, I, I'm not exactly sure, but it was 4%. Maybe it's a little bit more now, but in terms of directing feature films, really bad. Yes. Right? But d- does it feel as though there has been a a change in the last 12 months or is it really still at the bottom of I think of the in hill? television there's more female directors right now obviously um, Andrea Arnold has directed uh, Big Little Lies for us all seven hours of it <laughs> which is a huge accomplishment but at the same time 
you know, there's still, when you look at the feature film statistics and just in general, it's still nowhere near even. So let's try to all change that. And is it true for the um, for the next series of Big Little Lies, is it true that Meryl Streep actually got She's in touch fine. with you and kind of wrote herself into the story? No, she didn't write herself in. She actually um, was such a huge fan of the series and, and really understood it on a deep sort of level and, and particularly sort of reached out about Celeste and domestic abuse. And and so Leanne Moriarty came in and wrote a sort of a 200-page novella for the second series for us. And in that, she she wrote a character called Mary Louise, which happens to be Meryl Streep's real name. So there was a subliminal message there to Meryl from Leanne. And then Leanne did say, the only thing I want for season two is Meryl Streep. <laughs> I was like, not not a chance, Leanne. And then before you know it, there she is supporting us. So we're very lucky to have her. And I think after Destroyer, we see you in Boy Erased. That's right, is yes. That the next one? Yes, I play a, a supporting role in that as um, the mother in this family who are dealing with um, their son who is homosexual and the parents decide that the right thing to do would be to take him to conversion therapy. So, And you're married to Russell Crowe, and I think he was quoted as saying, <laughs> he's waited a long time to be married to you. Did he say that? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, he did. Uh, Keep waiting. Uh, exactly. <laughs> no, he's got a long time to wait. Uh, Destroyer is the new movie from uh, Nicole Kidman. Nicole, thank you very much indeed. Nice to talk to you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so it's six minutes to three. Destroyer uh, is the movie. Nicole Kidman is undoubtedly the star. This is what Mark thinks. I think Nicole Kidman is the star, but I also think that Karen Kasama, who directed it, who is a, a, a very underrated talent, um, obviously made Girl Fight, also Jennifer's Body, has a very good standing um, among horror fans because she's somebody who's worked in the genre. She was involved in that XX anthology um, of uh, female-helmed horror movies. And what she has always managed to do is to balance the um the the sort of uh, a genre the pulpy genre sensibility with something which is much more character driven much more deep she's very very good at having movies in which you have very interesting uh, female leads um in the case of this the very beginning of the film i mean you talked about when you first see nicole kidman in it and she's kind of waking up in her car in this stupor Funnily enough, the thing that that opening reminded me of was Blue Ruin, the Jeremy Solnier movie about somebody whose whole life has fallen apart and they're living in their car. And there's a again, there's a story about something from the past that is resurfacing and this is the thing that's going to kind of get them out of it. So when you first see her, she's she has this face that looks like it's been simultaneously drowned, sandblasted and sun-dried. I mean, it's it's really extraordinary and her eyes look translucent she looks at death's door yeah she she looks very unwell and um very early on in the film there's a confrontation with her and some other cops she turns up at a crime scene and they go for heaven's sake you need to get yourself together you know what are you doing here why are you here and she says very flippantly you know what if i you know what if i know what this is and they yeah they've all basically had enough of her and then um as Nicole Kidman described, then the story flip-flops back and forth between the present day and a story in the past in which there was an undercover sting that we know some we know something happened, we know that there is some guilt, um, and we we slowly see that story um, unfolding 
in tandem with the modern day story in which a, a, a protagonist from that original backstory has, has somehow appears to have resurfaced. Brilliant performance, incidentally, by Toby Kebbell, who is um, sort of snake-like and uh, slimy, but in a way which is kind of completely uh, believable. I really like this for a number of reasons. Firstly, because tonally it, it, it owes a lot to those kind of those seventies movies like Serpico and French Connection, you know, films about about tortured, uh, you know, cops and, and and undercover and you know identity and people wrestling with. I've always liked that kind of stuff. Secondly, because the story I think is very well told. Um, the the back and forth between the past and the present is sort of delineated not only in terms of the the, the narrative beats, but also in terms of the way the film looks. I mean, somehow the past looks saturated and rich and the present looks like you know like like it's in the aftermath of some catastrophe and the whole color scheme brilliantly uh, i think echoes that i also think it's important that at the heart of it there is this relationship between her character erin and the daughter shelby who the who erin is in terror is in terrible fear that shelby will sort of repeat the mistakes of her mother that her mother has at some point become derailed and we're not entirely sure how that happened until the film sort of starts to reveal these things but there is this palpable sense of you know wanting to wanting to make sure that the past doesn't repeat itself wanting to make sure that something isn't handed down from mother to daughter and 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 thence onward and i think it I think you get that emotional investment so that even, as you were saying, talking about playing an unsympathetic character, I mean, a character who is completely rattled, a character who, in the same way as Harvey Keitel's bad lieutenant, has done so many bad things and is going to actually continue to do so many bad things because they've now got... They, they're locked. People keep saying you need to move on. People keep saying you need, you need to get over it, but that doesn't happen. And there's almost this sense that what's happening to Aaron's character in the present day is Nicole Kidman talked about it being, you know, moving towards redemption, but that's a redemption which involves going through the pit of fire. And there are there are scenes in this film that actually did remind me of Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant in terms of you kind of, you know, you think Yes, really? Wow. You know, but 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 convincingly so, because actually they make they all make narrative sense. I don't think any of them are gratuitous, but I think they are there to give you the sense that this character has been reduced to you know, to, to, apps, to sort of base level of existence that she is now functioning on a level which is exist, get the thing done. You know, but it's almost as if she has obliterated her own her own sense of self, and that is amplified when you see those scenes contrasted with the flashback scenes. And I went I went into this having been told by some people that you know the, the Nicole Kidman performance is absolutely the best thing but I think her performance is great but I think the movie is much more than a great performance I think it's a well-told story by a director who is underrated and I think it has a sensibility that I really like that kind of 70s nihilism the grit the you know the the feeling under the under your fingernails and I I thought I, I thought it was really good I ended up Oh, I wondered whether CGI got involved in making her look thinner than she is because her clothes just hang off her. And the way there's she, nothing of her. I think it's the clothes, and I think the way she walks that she looks like she's been weighed down by a ton of bricks. That somehow she's like a, a hobbled pack horse or something. I think is is really well done. The movies destroy her, and we talk about Vice in just a moment. We'll talk about Can You Ever Forgive Me with Richard E. Grant just after that. Uh, before we get there on the subject of Maryland, you know, the US yes. state, which we've been saying wrong, because mm. uh, Frankie sent us an email from Baltimore saying it's Maryland. 
Justin Exley. Simon, a, a number of years ago as a student, I can remember visiting the University of Maryland. Being English, I pronounced it as Maryland. At that point, after some guffawing, I was told, you do not pronounce it like that, you Britisher. <laughs> it is, as your earlier correspondent stated, pronounced, it is Maryland. Maryland. Yes. Maryland. As, yeah, as it's Marilyn and not Mary, basically. So yeah, if you Marilyn. add the D to Marilyn, then Marilyn. you're there. Posh Jim in Neasden. This is like like American tourists saying, do you know the way to Leicester Square? It is, it is exactly, exactly like that. that. Yeah. Uh, yes, Posh Jim in Neasden. Bob Dylan clearly sings, high office relations in the politics of Marilyn in his chart-avoiding 1964 hit, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, like this. In high office relations... In the politics of Marilyn. There you go. He does. You see, I Quite thought, I didn't so. realise that's what he was saying. I thought he was saying politics of Marilyn. Whoever she is. <laughs> no, it's the politics of Marilyn. So this is an education. <laughs> there we go. Uh, okay, so uh, Vice is one of the big movies uh, laden with Oscar noms as it is. Yeah, uh, absolutely laden with Oscar noms. Let's, let's um, about Vice. If we look at the, yeah, so it's been nominated for... Uh, achievement in editing, screenplay, directing for Adam McKay, motion picture, performance by an actor in a leading role, Christian Bale, performance by an actor in a supporting role, Sam Rockwell, uh, actress in supporting role, Amy Adams, and achievement in makeup and hairstyling. Um, you've seen it, obviously. Yes, yes, of course. And so, the, yes, the makeup and hairstyling is. So it stars. Um, uh, <laughs> under it stars Christian Bale under a huge amount of makeup and yeah. hairstyling. I think that's the best way of describing it. Um, when he got his uh, award, his, his Golden Globe, he um, he famously thanked Satan for providing inspiration for the role, which sort of set everybody into a into a sort of flurry of uh, you know of, of Twitter sphere meltdown. He portrays Dick Cheney, um, and uh, there is definitely in this uh, film a sort of demonic edge to his VP. Who, you know, as you know, is the you know mastermind in war on terror, and uh, you know using the unitary executive theory to basically make a president unassailable with himself essentially as the power behind the throne. So the film itself is a sort of study of his life and how he got to be what he was, beginning with him as a kind of, as a derelict drunk who is told by his wife, you have to get your act together. And then somebody who does get their act together and then becomes this person who is absolutely at the very sort of dark heart of power. Here is a scene with him uh, and Sam Rockwell uh, as George W. I want you to be my VP. You're the solution to my problem. Yeah. Um, CEO of a large company. I have been uh, Secretary of Defense. I have been Chief of Staff. Uh, the Vice Presidency is mostly a uh, symbolic job. Right, right. I can see how that wouldn't be uh, enticing to you. However, the Vice Presidency is also defined by the President. And if we were to come to a uh, different understanding uh-huh go on maybe i can uh, handle some of the more mundane jobs overseeing uh, bureaucracy managing military uh energy uh foreign policy that sounds good you can it's funny when you hear when you hear him doing the i can't do his voice when you hear him doing the voice and you can almost see the lips and the you know the the face that he pulls when he's doing that the kind of you know 
the teeth and the lips making. You were doing the same thing. You, and well, it's because you were pulling strange faces. No, because it's there is something about just hearing that voice which almost makes you start doing the face that Christian Bale does all the way through the film. It's also a performance that was... Somebody was talking about this just recently, about the idea of the Academy Award-winning pause. Um, the, uh, you know, the start saying something with a pause in an unexpected place. And which immediately draws uh, Ward's attention. It is it is a very good performance, and it is very good uh, makeup and hair. I have to say, I'm slightly baffled by the level of lavish praise that has been heaped on Vice. Um, when uh, Adam McKay made Adam McKay made um, the Big Short, I had certain reservations about the Big Short, but the Big Short I enjoyed because firstly it was funny, and secondly because in its sort of exploration of how it was that uh, these uh, these financial dealings had essentially caused this catastrophic crash. The film was told in a very sort of flippant manner, but also in a flippant manner that, like somebody doing a card trick whilst explaining to you how the card trick was being done, was both entertaining and, oh, oh that's interesting. I definitely came out of the big short understanding some things that I hadn't understood before. I know that now some people say, well, actually, yes, it's much more complicated than that. But if, but actually one of the things... That, it was still pretty complicated. It was still pretty complicated, but one of the things that the movie did was, was, was to make understandable a certain amount of that complicated stuff. And it did it through sort of, you know, fourth wall breaking devices about, you know, here's somebody famous in a bath to explain this, here's a chef to explain that. And... But but it worked. In the case of this, it, the film kind of admits at the beginning that little is known really about its central character, and that therefore there is there's got to be a huge amount of conjecture. And and the the central character, I think, still by the end of the film, despite a similar sort of barrage of stylistic ticks of you know fourth wall breaks, a moment when um, two central characters break into Shakespearean dialogue in a moment of inarticulacy, a moment when halfway through the film there's this joke about suddenly the end of the film, there's an alternative ending to the film, what if somebody had done this and what if their life had gone that way instead? And so while I thought it was kind of individually, there were things in it that I that I liked, the performances in it that I liked and some that I liked more than others. What it didn't have was that overall sweep, that sucker punch, that comedic satirical thing that made you go, I've got it. I I absolutely have got it. And in a way, the film kind of admits its own failing in that at the beginning because it sort of suggests that, it, that, that, that it's not really possible to get under the skin of the central character. And the problem with that is that it ends up sometimes particularly i have to say in the in the sort of final act of the movie looking less like a like a clever satirical um undoing and more like something which is polemics trying to find the right mode of discussion i mean it's it's it is a it is a more complicated story to tell and for me i ended up, i thought it was it was a, it was less satisfyingly told and i i don't think i'm alone in this i have sp- I have spoken to some other people who have said, who've shared that reservation that yes, there are things in it that are good, and yes, there are there are individual performances that are good, and there's no question that Christian Bale. I mean, you know, whenever Christian Bale does any role, he sinks himself right in. When was the last time you saw Christian Bale doing a role that seemed half-hearted? You know, he doesn't look like somebody who takes things on lightly, does no, he? Not you know, really. you can imagine that's what he's going to. You know, Nicole Kidman said that thing about when she was in character on the set of Destroyer that she didn't snap out of character because she felt that she would be playing it, and there is. You definitely get the sense of somebody inhabiting a role. 
But I don't know that the film did what the big short did of revealing the underlying workings of some, you know, great dark thing that was happening and understanding how it was happening and making it sly and funny and accessible at the same time. So, you know, I'm I'm slightly baffled by the by the huge amount of praise being heaped on it. Even for all the things that are right about it, I think as a film itself, it is it's in it's entertaining up to a point but it's flawed and what it doesn't have is that through narrative sucker punch killer blow you know i'm all out of cliches um you know line that runs despite things like this ongoing fishing analogy it never actually manages to land the big fish that's as close as i can get to wrapping that up neatly what do you think uh sam rockwell for best supporting actor no i think best supporting actor is gonna be mahershala ali isn't it do you think the Green Book? Do you think it's tough to work out? I don't know. It? It's a very difficult. It's it's a it's a very difficult category. I mean, there's so many people nominated who are great. Yeah, <laughs> I can't keep a straight face doing this. I don't know. <laughs> Anyone else got anything to say on that? Oh, hello, Richard. Hi. Congratulations, Richard. Thank you very much. This is Richard. And very well e. deserved. Thank you, Grant. Richard, emergency Grant. Yes, you you become known as Richard Emergency Grant uh, oh. in recent weeks because Mark confessed a few weeks ago that a few years ago he always thought that email stood for emergency mail. The E stood for I emergency. Know, I didn't know it was a thing. It was, so, you know. and so therefore everything with an E in front of it has become emergency. So okay. you are Richard Emergency Grant. Oh, that's, I've never heard that one before. If that's in trouble, right. send for Richard E. Grant. Okay, and and now the Oscar-nominated. Richard, emergency grant. One of the best things of the year so far, and let's face it, January is pretty grim, but one of the best things is that little film that you put online of when, when you uh, heard that you got the Oscar nomination of yourself outside your old flat, just so utterly delighted with life. <laughs> yeah, astonished. And my daughter just told me that it's had 3.3 million hits, which is just a complete astonishment. To it's me. your most successful film, role. It is indeed, yeah. Most seen. Yeah. How do you, Unequivocally. So you heard about it from your daughter? No, I was sitting in a restaurant in Notting Hill and I saw she had it a live feed on her iPhone and we just finished eating and she gave me an earpiece and I saw the first, I think, three names come up and I didn't see... Did uh, they come up in alphabetical order? Is that... I don't know that they did that. Okay. I haven't even checked that. But I know when I saw that Tim- Timothy Chalamet was not on the list, I thought I'm d- cooked, done for. <laughs> because, as you know, it's a kind of horse race that there are so many predictions and I got tweets and Google alerts and all this stuff. Of, you know, the odds are, w- will you get nominated or won't you get nominated? So when I saw that Timothy Chal- Chalamet was not on the list, I thought, well, that's it. <laughs> and then when I saw my name pop up, uh, we both just simultaneously burst into tears and people around us thought that we needed grief counselling but uh, I said no 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 this was actually good news and I happened to be parked around the corner from where I'd first rented a bed sit 36 years ago in Notting Hill Gate So the full the full uh, slate is Adam Driver for Black Klansman Sam Rockwell for Vice Mahershala Ali for Green Book Sam Elliott for A Star Is Born and the magnificent Richard E. Grant for Can You Ever Forgive Me? Thank you, Mr. Magnificent Commode. It's, it's, a, it's an impressive list. I mean, to be honest, you're going to be at the do you're going to have a fantastic time Yeah, Whatever we all happens. know that Mahershal has won you know, he's won everything. Oh, is, yeah. is that j- because I was there at the Golden Globes, and I'm going to the Screen Actors Guild this you know, t- tomorrow. <laughs> and everybody, you know, it's it's that I think it's the same moment. It happens every year. I can remember when Emma Thompson won that there was nobody even you know, in the wake of her winning streak. In the same way as Gary Oldman won everything last year, but Mahershala is winning everything on this. So 
just to be, you know, that old thing that you fall back on, just to be nominated is an honour. And in my case, it absolutely is because I've never had anything like this before. Um, so the movie, of course, is uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Just tell us, we'll, we'll play a clip and, and, and we'll talk about the film. Just ex- just explain who it's about and where you where you fit into this. It's a story, true story about a biographer called Lee Israel who was a very prickly, curmudgeonly, um, misanthropic writer in the late 80s in New York. And she fell on hard times and was trying to get a biography of Fanny Bryce published. And the publisher said that nobody has any interest in Fanny Bryce. She found a letter, Fanny Bryce, in the library, stole it, added an addendum, and sold this to a memorabilia collector and realised that there was money to be made out of doing that. So she imitated a series of very famous 20th century dead writers and passed them off as the real thing. And she fell in collusion with a coke-dealing, HIV-positive, petty criminal alcoholic called Jack Hawk, um, who I play, (laughs) form this unlikely friendship. (laughs) And um, what what do we know for certain about... Jack Hawk, what did you know? You know, did you know enough on which to base the character? How did he you... died of AIDS in 1994 at the age of 47? He was blonde, tall, good-looking, and came from Portland in Oregon. Uh, so, and he used a little cigarette holder, and that was the one thing that, because I'm way older than he was, but I think his family, from what we can gather, had disowned him because he was um, gay, and he also there are no photographs of him. All his friends had died of AIDS. So the director, Mariel Heller, said, I don't want you to do an American accent. I said, I can do one. She said, I don't want you to. So I asked if I could use the little cigarette holder that was specified in her Lee Israel's memoir. So she allowed me to do that, which gave me some sort of notion that he had delusions of looking like Peter O'Toole swanning around in Greenwich Village at this point in time with a cigarette holder. OK, so let's hear a, a clip from the film with Melissa McCarthy as Lee Israel and Richard Emergency Grant as Jack Hogg. Israel. It's Jack Hawk. Last time I saw you, thank you, we were both pleasantly at some horrible book party. Am I right? It's slowly flooding back to me. You're friends with um, Julia Steinberg? Yeah. She's not an agent anymore. She died. She did? Jesus, that's young. Maybe she didn't die. Maybe she just moved back to the suburbs. I was confused those two. No, that's right. She got married and had twins. Better to have died. Indeed. I've just come from having my teeth bleached. How do they look? Why would you do that? Oh, teeth are a dead giveaway. Okay. Do I buy you a drink? Even though you're the posh writer. Thank you. Craigie, yeah. top her up. Yes, there's a lot of Lefroig being drunk uh, all the way uh, all the way through, uh, and that's from. Uh, can you ever forgive me? Just explain a little bit, Richard, about the relationship between uh, Jack and Lee, because it's it's obviously at the heart of this film, and it's it's fascinating. Uh, they chance upon each other in Julius Bar, which is the oldest gay bar in Manhattan, where they actually were barflies, and so we even sat in the seat positions where they regularly met. Um, and then they they help each other out. He's completely destitute, been disowned by his family, has no money left. Um, is still trying to sell baking powder as coke and little deals on the side. And once she is rumbled by the FBI for selling these fake forged literary letters, she then uses Jack Hawk to go and fence them. And this is that that's the one thing that I 
sort of hung on to from her memoir is that where she would, Lee Israel would expect him to come back with three or four hundred bucks, he would come back with two thousand. So he obviously had a talent, even if he was skimming off the top of that, of conning people and doing whatever spiel he came out with. So that's what I hung on to as a way of yeah, trying to find a way into playing the character. And, it, and is, is it true that your casting was done in a hurry? Yeah, because originally it was going to be made with Julianne Moore and Chris O'Dowd and Nicole Hollisenter, who co-wrote the screenplay, was directing it. And then, according to Variety, euphemistically said, creative differences, the film stopped a week before they started shooting and went the way of all flesh. And then Mariel Heller came on board once. The common denominator was Ben Falcone, who was playing one of the shady book dealers, is married to Melissa McCarthy. So she basically stepped her way into the role because <laughs> when she heard that a movie had gone down, Ben was still attached, and she then fell in love with Lee Israel and thought this extraordinary woman's story had to be told. And once she got on board, then it got refinanced by Fox Searchlight. And then six weeks before they started shooting in November 2016, I got a call from my agent saying, you have 24 hours to read the script. So, you know, I thought it was like Mission Impossible. It would have blown <laughs> up. And they said, no, you have to decide. And I read all the people that were involved and recognised all of them. Obviously, Marielle from Diary of a Teenage Girl and Melissa McCarthy. And I was slightly trepidatious because I thought it would be a Melissa McCarthy comedy vehicle, you know, in the guise of playing Lee Israel. But it was very clear that if she had agreed to play the part, that you, you, you couldn't do that from the way the script is written. And then I met her exactly a year ago today um, in Manhattan for two hours. And we discussed this, the scenes very briefly and I said, you know, basic viewpoints. And then we started shooting on the Monday. And it was, felt like lightning in a bottle because our connection was instantaneous. Wow. So how, there was luck. How unusual is that scenario that you've just painted? Yeah, very so unusual. Quickly? Yeah, very, very unusual. Because, I've, you know, I've obviously played friendships with people before on screen, but to have this level of sort of real profound connection with a human, another human being so instantaneously was, you know, sort of coup de foudre. It's such a great... It's a it's a terrific performance, Richard, and it, you. and it's you know and you, you 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 play it brilliantly. I was looking at the Oscar nominations and thinking, you know, it's a shame that it's an all male director list because actually I think uh, Marilyn Heller did a brilliant job with directing this. There are people like I agree with you. I mean, it is it's it, there are two great performances, and those performances have clearly been well directed. They've been directed. They didn't happen by <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, but it's weird, isn't it? It's weird that you know sometimes, I, 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 especially I, with the Me Too movement and you know the zeitgeist of you know female affirmation in Hollywood, you would have thought maybe... Yes, right. exactly. And can, is it possible to describe the tone of the film? Because like you and I, I've I, I, I just seen the, the Melissa McCarthy movie. Everybody said it's not like a Melissa McCarthy movie that you've seen before. And there was a moment in it in which actually reminded me slightly of Nora Ephron, whom I'm a big fan of. And then there's a yeah. long Nora Ephron joke <laughs> that runs all the way yeah. through the film. How would you describe the, the tone of it for people who haven't seen it yet? Well, I'm showing my age, but the, the the movie that it immediately reminded me of when I when I read the screenplay was uh, John Schlesinger's amazing movie Midnight Cowboy, because you've got two disparate characters uh, who, on paper, shouldn't form any kind of friendship. Never mind become interdependent. So, Dustin Hoffman's uh, Ratso and Joe Buck, played by John Voight, it it is a kind of attraction of opposites. And out of desperation and destitution, they they fall into the life of, you know, crime. 
So it it moves. I know from the experience of seeing it for the first time with an audience at the Telluride Film Festival in September, that it went from hilarity in the first third to heartbreak in the end. And I think to to achieve that and deal with loneliness and isolation in two main characters doesn't sound like the recipe for a hit movie, both critically and box office. So it is an astonishment that it has been, really. Your character has also got an awful lot of front, an awful lot, you know, sort of putting on an act and, yeah. you know, and everything's fabulous. And you hear, so you see behind that there is, there is a sadness. Yeah, he's, he's, he's dying. Yeah. And there was a part of me that thought that actually the subtlest thing about that performance is that when you first meet him, he seems to break, you know, he comes, he sees her on the thing and he says, oh, I must come over and she doesn't want to talk to him at all. But it's a very, very clever balance between telling the audience that this is a front Mm -hmm. and letting them know right from the beginning, right from the very beginning, that all is profoundly not well in his world and that he he is acting, you are acting somebody doing an act. (laughs) Wow, thank you for that. But I was, you know, I credit to the screenwriters, the director, Mario, and also Arjun, the costume designer, who gave me this sort of beyond threadbare, way past its sell-by date, last gasp with the singles bar look of neo-romantic, <laughs> you know, Spandau Ballet type stuff on a man in advanced middle age, 15 years after the, you know, neo-romanticism had long gone. So that helps enormously, just telling you this person is living on his uppers. I've brought in uh, my copy with nails. The film diaries of Richard E. Grant, Thank the, you. the hilarious and yeah. riotous film diaries of Thank Richard E. Grant, which, which which you signed for me when you came. This is a Radio One copy you signed in your traditional flamboyant style. Okay, and I'm which quoting. I look like I did on the cover there. My God, I'm Black quoting hair. to you now from from your own book. Okay. Yes. Uh, no matter how intense, important, life-alteringly fabulous or fiasco-laden a flick is, yeah. it finally is just that, a flick of the fa- fast-forward button or fade-out. This year's must-see is destined to shuffle itself onto the overstocked video shelf six months after its release. If you don't know what a video is, ask your parents. Okay. <laughs> I ponder the question that's always asked, did you know at the time you were destined to be in a hit or a howler? And apart from an unequivocal no, three answers spring forth. Casablanca was considered unreleasable, the Dakota plane unflyable, and the Titanic unsinkable. So, Richard, at what stage did you think, it being in this movie, that it was going to be a big old hit? Uh, I can tell you very precisely. It's the first screening of it was at the Telluride Film Festival up in the Colorado Ski Resort Mountains in September last year at four o'clock in the afternoon. And we knew by the temperature changes you could feel in the audience in a way that you can in a theatre and nowhere else. And within two, and and the response that people had, knowing very little about the film, uh, that they they came up and physically and verbally told us and expressed how much they felt about these characters. And then within two hours, uh, Variety and the Hollywood Reporter reviews came out and they were astonishingly positive. So we thought if those two lots, plus what we'd experienced in the audience, if that if that translates outwardly, if that's a sort of apex of it, uh, that gave us an idea that something was going to change. And that buzz has continued pretty much ever since. Yeah, and it's been, it's literally snowballed because I've been now been, what they don't tell you is that I saw, saw Colin Firth the other night. He's, he said, you have the look of an exhausted campaigner about you. And... He said, nobody warns you this is going to happen, that 
I went straight from Telluride to the Toronto Film Festival, where it snowballed even more. And since then, apart from 10 Days Off at Christmas, I have been on a promotional trail of this, and I'm doing so today as we speak. And each time it gets nominated for more awards, th- there's kind of more press attention that accrues around it. So I'm now going to, you know, Richard, like Guild tomorrow. I know you're not suggesting that you're here as part of a campaign. You're here because you wanted to be I here. Wanted and to, to, share to be here. But you are, you're, it, it is, you go, uh, the movie took 26 days and this, this publicity process has been going on for five months <laughs> and is now only going to, I thought it had ended months ago, yeah. but as each award and nomination has come up, and now the Oscars at the end of it. Um, and various people in, in Hollywood said to me, you, you're going to be here in January and you're going to be here in February. Don't take any other job. And I thought they were you know, talking nonsense, blowing smoke. Yeah, but it's now it has come true. And and what, on, on Sunday, Richard won at the London Film Critics Award. You won Best uh, Sporting Actor and gave a terrific speech, Thank which you. was fantastic. And there, uh, so many people have mentioned this, but we'll just mention it in passing. There must have been a, a, a moment maybe when you were filming where you thought back to With Nail and that kind of... Looseness, which has been associated with you from that, from those early moments, sort of back into this film. Did you feel any kind of echo of that film in this? Uh, Melissa McCarthy had never seen it, so uh, she said to me when I had to do a drunk scene. She said, you, "She said for some of the guys allergic to alcohol, you're you're pretty good at convincing me that you are lathered. Are you sure that you're not drinking?" And I said, "No, no, I'm not." She said, have you ever played a drunk before? And that's how I knew that she, she'd never seen this, this movie. And I think inevitably, because, you know, this is set in the early 90s, Withnail was set in the early, you know, late 60s. I'm in long coats, in period clothing, and I'm an alcoholic again 32 years later. I can see the, the obvious parallels that you're drawing. But no, long answer to your short question, I didn't, I didn't make the connection when, when I was doing it. And you still don't smoke or, or drink at all? No, no, allergic. No, I'm not allergic to smoking, I just never got why people do it yeah. uh, the, uh, the the final paragraph in your book just the one after the one i've already quoted being quoted here yeah. the, the other most commonly asked question is double barreled shotgun what's next if you what's aren't next? working it's tantamount to an accusation if you are an affirmation uh, anyway so it's star wars next yeah. so just tell us the whole story of uh, of the plot and your character and what you wear and everything okay um well it goes like this the character i'm playing is called <laughs> And the plot involves, <laughs> and that's it. Really? Yeah. That could be really exciting. It really is. I'm really yeah. up for that. You know, being, the- being asked, what are you doing next? When you say, <laughs> I'm doing Star Wars, people, you can see it's a sort of knee-jerk reaction. People just go, oh, so what are you doing next? And you say Star Wars. There, there have been double takes. People go, excuse me, what did you just say? Yeah. You know he got Killian Murphy into terrible trouble. Is when Killian Murphy was doing, uh, was it, maybe it was the Batman. It was, it was, it was Batman. It was Batman. Yeah. And Simon said, um, "Is it true that you're doing that you're doing Batman?" And Killian Murphy said, I, I, "Well, I, I can't say anything." And he said, "Was it true?" And Simon Murphy said, "I can't say anything. I, I've signed the non-disclosure agreement." Which... <laughs> <laughs> he is a brilliant actor. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh my god. Um, we finished with this from uh, Lauren Watts. I discovered that they will be showing "Can You Ever Forgive Me" on my flight to New Zealand next month. This has given me a reason to not dread the flight, so I have high hopes for it. I was delighted to see Richard's reaction to his Oscar nomination and to finally see an actor showing some true feelings. Good luck, Richard. Hello to Jason Isaacs. Thank you very much. Keep up the good work. Uh, Richard, it's been um, a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in. And Mark and I will forever think of this not as just part of the promotion. But, you know, (coughs) taking taking time out to spend time, quality time with friends. You broke off from another lunch with your daughter to come in and say hi and to... 
Thank us for supporting Thank you, gentlemen. Work. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, it's out next week. Can you ever forgive me? Richard, thank you so much. And good luck. And, thank you, uh, gents. And if Mahershala doesn't take it, let's hope that, it, oh, that you do. Oh, we know he is. It's Five Live at 3.33. Richard, Richard E. Grant has a, a smile the size of a house. And I imagine if you get your first Oscar nomination at the age of 61, virtually 62, it kind of feels as though twice as wonderful as it does when it, if you were 21 or 31. Have so. I told you, which I'm sure I have, um, the story of... Yes. Uh, but please tell it again, because I enjoy it so much when we hear stories. The story of <laughs> Hudson Hawk, which I, Kim Newman and I watched uh, in the Empire Leicester Square, and we thought it was good and funny and everybody else hated it. And uh, back in the days of Radio 5, before it was 5 Live, I was doing a programme and Richard E. Grant had come on. And I said, you know, it's it's such a shame because that film got such terrible reviews. And he went, well, it was absolutely terrible. And I said, no, no, I mean, Kim and I... We really liked it. We thought it was really funny. And he said, in that case, you are clinically insane. It is a steaming pile of donkey droppings. Now, find me another actor who would say that about something that they were in. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, we, if we'd had longer, but it is a, a well-established theory that after the, the book with Nails, which I was quoting from, it, I mean, it was just a fantastic, entertaining Yeah, it's an absolute uh, page romp, turner, But it, it was because it was so revealing, that, <laughs> so the theory runs, that a lot of uh, film studios didn't want to work with him because they didn't know what else he would be revealing. Oh, really? Because uh, they, they were frightened. And so he entered, the, the you know, the Spice World years. <laughs> <laughs> So I suspect spice he's going to have quite a busy uh, next decade. Anyway, because Richard came in, I didn't do any correspondence about Vice. Vice. So let me just do a couple of those, then we'll do TV Movie of the Week. Yes. Robin Berry, um, you could not desecrate someone's image more completely than... Are we going for McKay, Adam McKay? You said McKay and Mackay. Yeah, I, I don't... Hang on. The, the printer. Hang on. Is it... Yep, it's that James Coomer or something. What is it? Let's have a look. What is going on? I think we're going to go for McKay, I think, but I'm sure that may be wrong. I don't know. Okay. Go on. It says, um, home documents seen by the... Oh, I better not read that one. <laughs> Here's our special correspondent. You're fired. Yeah. Please don't read this out anywhere else. Um, Hello, Colin, this says. I'm editing Radio 4, 6 o'clock today. I'm interested in this story. Can you have any? Okay. Anyway, come and claim it if it's yours. Anyway, Robin Berry says, uh, more completely that destroyed than Adam McKay has done for Dick Cheney with Vice. What a genius. What a fabulous film. I absolutely loved it. Christian Bell for president. Well, perhaps just the Oscar. He was a joy to behold, as was the whole cast. Bravo for the filmmaker to take aim and absolutely nail his target. Best film of the year to date. OK, that's interesting. Uh, that's not the response that I had. Gavin in South London. I must admit, I went into the film not being an expert on Dick Cheney, but I found the film much more entertaining and effective than The Big Short. The external narrative and use mm. of video clips that featured heavily in The Big Short were similarly used here, but woven seamlessly into the storyline. Both Christian Bale and Amy Adams' central performances were stylish. The film slowly made me slump with horror into my seat whilst watching Cheney's motives and actions play out. I walked out of the cinema feeling a little disgusted with myself at how much I enjoyed watching Cheney manipulate and exploit the political system to his advantage, and I would suggest that people give this a viewing if they can. Okay. Uh, so that's Vice as already reviewed. TV movie of the week. Here we go, then. Yes. Martin Johnson suggests uh, the little five-note refrain in Close Encounters is a pop culture reference that almost everyone understands in the same way people understand the two-note cello riff 
in Jaws. Just for those two things alone, Spielberg's films have to be recognised as the works of art they are. Mark will pick The Departed for Marky Mark Wahlberg proving he can actually act. (laughs) Gordon Duncan, The Departed, as it made me start viewing cinema as art rather than just the movies. The twists, the editing, cinematography, Leonardo DiCaprio's underrated and best performance... Everyone brings their A-game. It is a masterpiece, even if people still see it as Scorsese getting an overdue overdue best picture director win. David Parkinson, on re-watching, I found Close Encounters a bit too Spielbergian, which sounds like an unfair criticism, yes. really. Oi, Stephen, stop doing that Spielbergian thing All that thing, thing you, you do. do. All, the, you. all the heartstring uh, tricks and a little bit silly at the end, just like E.T., really. Andrew Galvin, it's just Close Encounters, right? Early Spielberg firing on all cylinders. Odd time to be on, though. I'll barely have time to make mashed potato. Uh, Mike, Baker, Mike Baker has to be Casino Royale. Brilliant reboot of the franchise, which could have gone... Either way, given the media coverage of Blonde Bond, etc. Daniel yeah, Craig. Funny? I always forget that. There was that whole outcry. He can't be Bond, he's blonde. Daniel Craig has never quite matched his performance in his subsequent outings as James Bond for me. Still very much looking forward to Bond 25, though. What is our TV movie of the week? Well, I'm because my memory fails me, have I done Bross already as a, as a TV movie of the week? He turns to I the have, gallery. Yeah, I have. I don't think I have. In that case, I am am going to go for Bross after the screaming stops, which is on at a quarter to 11 at night on BBC Two. Um, And it was, I know a lot of people saw it over Christmas because a lot of people got in touch to say, I just saw the Bross thing over Christmas. You picked it as movie of the week. Yeah, I picked it as movie of the week, but now it's TV movie of the week because I I enjoyed it so much and so many people got in touch after they'd seen it over Christmas to say, you know, I had no interest in Bross. I had no interest in the story, but I just you know, laughed and smiled all the way through. And the the triumph of it is, in very much the same way as Anvil, the story of Anvil, you laugh with and at them at the same time. I mean, there's no question that there are things in which, in which the film is sort of setting the brothers up for a fall. But there is... It, it never feels malicious because it's all to do with, with them talking about themselves. And I, I was never a Bross fan. I don't think I own a Bross record. I know that you played Bross records on, I used on BBC to One. A lot. I Radio just, One, in fact. Re, what did I say? Yes, yeah, sorry. One. I just remember When Will I Be Famous? But Bross, um, after the screaming stops, is, is a real treat. And it is on at a quarter to 11 at night on Saturday on BBC Two. Uh, Stephen Oak says, yes, after the screaming stops, it's utterly impossible to look away once it starts. I didn't know whether to laugh <laughs> or feel sorry for them. Best thing on TV this week by a long shot, Mark will agree, judging by his recent review, and yeah, that yeah. is exactly uh, what Mark has done. TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. Sean Hathley, 10,000 BC is hung over Sunday viewing. Not the best, but certainly not the worst. Jason Marsden, Jaws 3, watched at Durham in 3D. As an eight-year-old, it was awesome. As a 43-year-old, it's awful. James Beckingham, 10,000 <laughs> right. BC, was enjoyed silly fluff Jaws 3D isn't Jaws 4 so the one film to avoid has to be XXX um, the XXX colon the chance to catch 40 winks Martin Harrison I haven't seen any of them but I'll go with XXX because seriously a tough guy action hero called Xander uh, Ricardo Gallegos a scientist of some renowned <laughs> German University should make a large and professional research on XXX, the return of Xander Cage, because I'm pretty sure that watching it actually reduces the number of functioning brain cells in the human brain. What is our TV movie of the week so bad? It's bad. Yeah, I am going to go for XXX, the return of Xander Cage, which was absolutely terrible. The Whoever it was that wrote in to say Jaws 3 is not Jaws 4. It you know, never has a true... James word, Beckingham, that was. Never has a truer word been spoken. I mean, Jaws 3 is... 
I saw Jaws 3 when it first came out at the Cine City in Withing, Withington in Manchester. And, and it was in that very brief craze for 3D movies that included uh, Amityville 3D and Friday the 13th 3D. There was a little... And there was one moment at the very beginning of Jaws 3D when a tiny little guppy swims in front of the titles and it was like oh look at that wow it's really close and then after that it was like this is really headachey and then so many years later 3d became a thing so when when can i avoid xxx you can avoid xxx 9 p.m on saturday on channel four we're, we're saying it like that because the second x is xx is a capital x is, and yeah. the other two because that's x for, x for xander okay uh, so that's the stuff that's on TV to watch and to avoid. What else is new? Uh, the Mule, which is um, inspired by a true story of a 90-year-old veteran who became a drug courier for a drugs cartel. Uh, it stars uh, Clint Eastwood, uh, who also directs, and uh, essentially at the beginning of it, we see his character tending to flowers. He has a particular flower that he's very, very sort of devoted to and uh, he goes to flower shows and there's a flower that blossoms, flowers only very briefly and requires an awful lot of attention. And then we realise that whilst he's at this flower show, he is in fact missing a very, very significant event in his family's life because he's put all his affection and all his attention into these flowers and he has neglected his family. We then move to him uh, at a state when his business has run down he has nowhere to stay he has no friends nothing at all and he turns up again with his family who aren't entirely pleased to see him but somebody says you know i see that you've you've spent your life driving because that's what he does he drove from you know from place to place going to all these conventions but completely neglecting his family he says you know i've got a there's a job that you can do which just involves driving he said literally all you do is you drive from a to b the guy's never had a speeding ticket he's never had anything sort of completely clean license so he, he he seems to be the perfect person to fly under the radar. And he goes to an appointed place. They give him a package. They say, don't look in the package. You drive from here to here. When you get here, here's a mobile phone. He doesn't know how to work a mobile phone. When you get here, somebody will call you, drop off the bag. And he does it, and he gets some money, which he needs. And then, of course, he only intends to do it once, but then he does it again. And then he does it again. And the reason that he manages to get away with it is because he's a 90-year-old bloke driving a truck, exactly the speed limit going off and making weird little stops in places that he wants to visit and therefore even when being stopped by the police they just don't think for one minute that he could be a criminal oh. need help sir oh uh, officer hi you need uh, help uh no no i'm fine thank you what do you got there uh, little pecans I delivering pecans to my niece. And pecans. Yeah, pecans. She makes the worst pecan pie you've ever tasted. I feel sorry for her husband, but and I feel sorry for pecans too. <laughs> yeah. So, it's not the best clip in the world, but there we are. It's the clip that we have. Um, the film is uh, written by Nick Schenk, who wrote Gran Torino, which I think is actually a, a, a better film. But um, in this, what you get is Clint Eastwood playing a sort of avuncular grump somebody who is a you know a loner somebody who has distanced himself from all those people around him and this is clearly not something which is a massive stretch when it comes to Clint Eastwood because he's you know he's he's played that kind of that outsider the gruff you know keeps himself to himself he's parlayed that in a number of different movies over absolutely decades 
Weirdly enough, there was a part of it that reminded me tonally of The Old Man and the Gun, the Robert Redford movie. There was that sort of slightly swan song edge to it. Although, again, I think Old Man and the Gun is a better film. Um, Old Man and the Gun seemed to me to have slightly more slightly more substance, slightly more heart. And there was nothing in this that that, that rang true in, this, in the way that that moment in The Old Man and the Gun does when they're all sitting around in the bar and Tom Waits tells the tells the story of meeting his stepfather after having broken into his own house through the window. There's a terrific performance by Diane Weist, who is uh, his long-suffering ex, who actually does a really, really good job of letting the audience know just how insufferable he has been during his life. And yet somehow how it's possible, how it's possible to be completely fed up with somebody but still love them and how it's possible to be completely despairing of somebody and yet still, you know, remain uh, attached to them. So it's an odd little film. One thing which I th- which I thought really was strange is there's a there's an ongoing jo- joke in it um, about the politics of this old guy. So he's being followed, for example, by um, Bradley Cooper, of course, has worked with, uh, with Eastwood before, who is a DEA agent. And at one point, he goes to uh, the house of this cartel boss played by Andy Garcia. And there are jokes throughout the film about the way in which this old guy is not PC and hasn't got up to the minute. You know, he's thought to be generally good hearted, but he uses the wrong terms for African-Americans and that sort of thing. He's not racist, but he's he's fish out of water. And the film kind of acknowledges this. And yet it's got a very, very oddly retrograde attitude towards women because there is this scene in which he goes to this cartel and one of the things that happens is he's a 90-year-old bloke and they provide him with bikinied um, a company, you know. For And this is played just completely like straight and jolly. And for, there's, nothing, there's nothing about the film that, that seems to say, this is really, not, yeah, really, no. So it's odd. It's there are things about it that are that are bothersome and there are other things about it that are kind of quite you know quite gentle and 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 entertaining. I mean I was you know I was I was entertained up to a point but it's not as good as the old man and the gun which is a bet which is a better film and it also a, a film which at its heart has more heart but it is it was kind of entertaining in a sort of gruff avuncular genial sort of way I was disappointed with the old man and the gun Oh, really? Why? I mean, I, it, I'm I'm surprised. No, it was fine. It was it was good. I thought there I thought there were a number of moments where I don't want you I don't want this to annoy you. No, no, it won't annoy me. There are a number of moments. Title where I to thought, your opinion. As it did close ups on Robert Redford, I thought he was thinking I'm really acting now. I was just aware of the fact that he was acting as opposed to really. Just, yeah. Sorry. Okay. I I wow. I didn't think that at all. But um. Okay. What? what? Uh. Chris on a text here. Vice, we're back on Vice. Vice is rather sloppily assembled. It doesn't do much for the history it's trying to relate. Uh, agree with much of Mark's review. It does inadvertently show the White House in the rather dispiriting and bumbling way that the current incumbent is demonstrating. The numerous Oscar nominations are hard to fathom too, but no worries. Roma should easily sweep the board. Roma is still the favourite to win Best Picture, isn't it? That's what you tell yeah, me. Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah. I'm guessing it is. Seven yeah. minutes to four o'clock. What else? Uh, second act. Um, Jennifer Lopez, uh, sort of uh, career rom-com, directed by Peter Siegel, uh, written by Justin Zackham and Len Goldsmith-Thomas. So she plays um, a working woman, but he's working in retail, is failing to get promotion. She's in a long-term relationship, but 
despite uh, the implications of a partner, she has no time for kids because the partner's not, the time's not right, and his desire to settle down. She, you know, she, she, she wants something better for her life, and she makes a birthday wish. Oh, she's given a surprise birthday party that she knows is coming. She makes a birthday wish. You know, the, you know, get me out of this. You know, make my life change. She then applies for a job in an upmarket company. And uh, which is uh, uh, Treat Williams is the kind of is the guy in charge, and she goes to the interview, and they're all delighted to see her because she thinks I'm you know, not qualified for this job at all. And they're all delighted to see her because she then discovers that in fact her friends have knocked together a completely false CV and a completely false uh, Facebook page that portray her as a you know high flyer. It was at Harvard and you know mountains and Peace Corps and all this sort of stuff. And uh, she's, you know, she thinks, well, okay, well, that's really, really embarrassing, but at least I'm not going to get the job. And then she gets the job. I was FNC. They want to hire me. Shut up. I thought that kicked you out of her office. She did. I mean, I basically trashed her entire skincare line. Maybe that was a test to see if you were a straight shooter. The lie got you in the door. But you got the job, baby. I mean, come on. You could do this. Mr. Villa, a moment. Hey, who's the champ? What? You're the champ. Come on, what? who's the champ? Who's the champ? Huh? Yeah, come on, wake up. Who's the champ? Let's go. Who's the champ? I'm the champ. You're the champ. You're the champ. Get, come on, stop talking. So, uh, it's. So two things. Firstly, it's clearly not a movie for me. And secondly, it's not a movie that's that's very good. Um, she takes the job and she then discovers that she has a rival who seems to be a rival, but you know from the outset that they will find some way of bonding. And then the way in which they uh, find a way of bonding is it stretches the bounds of contrivance, you know, be, past credibility and beyond. And while I was watching it, I was thinking this. I was thinking, I did this programme for, for um, BBC4 about uh, genre films, and I did one about rom-coms. And there is a certain form of rom-com that this sort of follows in the footsteps of. It's the archetypal character, the woman who's you know, got a career over the thing, and then she has to make a decision about blah, 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 blah. And if you look back at the sort of screwball rom-coms, the great classic screwball rom-coms, you... you you know, if you start saying, well, that wouldn't happen, well, it doesn't matter. But the way in which the writing was done, the way in which the the, 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 the brio and the gusto of those classic screwball rom-coms was so great that actually it didn't matter. The, the inconsistencies of, you know, why is there, why is there a giant animal in the, in the bathroom? You just let it go because it worked. In the case of this, it's sort of weirdly... Somewhere in the back of it, there are films like Working Girl, which is a really great film, and 9 to 5, which is a really great film, and then this, which is an immensely forgettable and really not very great film. And it it felt like something that is going, that is, you know, it, it is at very best, if we were doing that programme again now, it would be at very, very best a footnote of an example of a film which is taking those sort of ideas and, you know, and just and recycling them. That said, I have to say in the interest of... Um, uh, you know, uh, fairness and uh, open disclosure. I saw the screen. I saw the film at a screening in which it was completely. I think it was called a talker screening. I mean, certainly, people did talk during the screening. I think it was called a talker screening, and other members of the audience appeared to be enjoying it more than I did. There was uh, a, a lot of when, in the sequences in which she's with her with her close friends, and they're you know kind of you know bickering and bonding. That stuff raised much more of a chuckle with other members of the audience than it did with me. So I do know that having sat in an audience of people who were who were ready to enjoy it. 
that it didn't utterly fail. But I did think this really isn't very good at all. Hugh McKenna, uh, second act is a film that is current and contemporary, has a classic sensibility, but a personality all of its own and the audacity to do something new with the films of this nature. I thought it was a delight from start to finish, even with a final act that is make or break in many respects. But I went with it because there's no such, uh, there's so much personality here, with Lopez on dazzling form as a character who is intelligent, endearing and a genuine individual. Great chemistry between Lopez and Leah Remini is another asset, especially a Stooges-like slapstick scene. But this is a film that could have been made in the 40s with Ginger Rogers or Gene Arthur in the lead. Well, that's that's kind of what I was saying. And the problem is that it wasn't made in the 40s with Ginger Rogers and Gene Arthur. And it was made now with However, this. And, and it doesn't have the personality of those films. It's brought right up to date and works a treat in broadening a familiar palette because of who's involved. It's a gem. Says Hugh. And OK, well, there we go. You know, I mean, I did, it's good to hear a, 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 an, alternate, an, alternate, an alternate take, even though it's wrong. Yep. Well, uh, no, no, it's not wrong. It's just different. You know. What else you got? Bergman, uh, A Year in a Life, which is a documentary about Ingmar Bergman by Jane Magnusson, uh, which attempts to sort of look at the life of uh, Ingmar Bergman whilst focusing specifically on a single year, 1957, in which he directed two play, with two films, Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries, both opened four plays, stuff for television, and it's an unbelievably productive year. And the documentary sort of posits that as a year in which he was at the height of his powers. How can he have done so much? So how can he literally physically have got all of this you know, into the time allotted? And then goes back and looks at his life using some previously unseen archive material, uh, interviews, and sort of extraordinary collection of interviews. Views. And it's uh, it's a sort of warts and all portrait. It includes an interview with his brother, which was suppressed when it was actually originally done, in which the brother basically says that the the, the, the story that he tells about all his stories being autobiographical is untrue because the version of his childhood that he puts on screen, things like Fanny and Alexander, is actually the brother's childhood and not his childhood and that he mythologises himself, which he talks about a lot. There is some very interesting stuff about his alarming early political sensibilities, his sympathies for Hitler and then his realisation that that, what an appalling thing that was. Um, He comes across as neurotic and obsessive and in some ways monstrous and yet managed to make these this extraordinary pieces of work. This something else production for BBC Radio 5 Live Film of the Week. Destroyer. <laughs> Such a clean machine. <laughs> the pistons are pumping. Really? Yes. And the hubcaps all gleam. I'm holding your wheel. I'm holding your wheel. All I hear is your gear. Hand on your grease gun. Yes. Boy, it's like a diseased son. But Roger, that don't run. They're working this metaphor, aren't they? They're hard. I'm with my car. Ah. And you know the most brilliant thing? This was the B-side of Bohemian Rhapsody. So he got the same publishing rights that Freddie Mercury did for writing right. Bohemian Rhapsody, because that's the way it worked. It, it just divides equally. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does. I, I don't think it works. And it, it is it my favourite line. 
told my girl I'd have to forget her. Why? Rather buy me a new carpet. Yes. But as you said earlier, there you go. The case for the prosecution rests <laughs> there, in Your Honour. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> It was the 70s, wasn't it? It was the 70s. So people got away And with didn't it. he drive a famous Mini? Didn't Roger Taylor have a famous Mini that was called something like the Silver Bullet or something? I don't know. You're already beyond my level of Queen expertise. I'm because afraid. he was always the coolest member of Queen. Because he was the sort of the old rocker. Because you think about it, like, um, you know, Modern Times Rock and Roll, which is the first album, and then... Uh, Tenement Funster or whatever it's called in uh, on Sheer Heart Attack. He was always writing songs about old rockers and, you know, blue suede shoes and all that sort of stuff. And then he, I, I bought Roger Taylor's solo album, Fun in Space. There are probably very few people listening to this now. And I did too. What an extraordinary thing. In fact, I'm currently purchasing it right now in a second-hand record store. I did tell Roger Taylor that and he went, no. <laughs> I'm having a big... Uh, Big clear out of uh, CDs at the moment because right. And did you find a copy of Fun in Space? Just got hun- I've just got thousands of these things which I haven't played for like ten years. So you think yeah. got to get rid of them, but it's quite difficult because they're all in very elaborate boxes and they've got presentation s- sleeves and it's all stamped and signed and all that kind of stuff. But nobody wants them. Nobody wants them at all. You can't give this stuff away. Can I say one last thing about you the, can have um, them if you want? The uh, no, I'm going to bring them in next week. Yeah, you can take I, them down. Why? Well, because I need to get rid of them somehow. I have any space in my... Fine, and then I'll bring you all my film scripts. You can have them. Okay, I'll do you a swap. Okay. Um, in that Ingmar Bergman documentary, which we were very rushed at the very end, there's a bit in the documentary in which Dick Cavett gets to interview Ingmar Bergman, and he's so nervous because it's Ingmar Bergman that, firstly, he calls him Ingrid Bergman, and secondly, he refers to the seventh seal as the seventh veil. And there was a thing that when I was doing the... The, that, the words thing for the Oxford English Dictionary. I'm, I'm their film consultant. And one of the words that was we were asked to check was Bergmanesque. And then when it was written up in the Times, um, it said Bergmanesque, meaning like the films of Ingrid Bergman. And and then so when I was doing that review, I was I was had the absolute paranoid terror of saying Ingrid Bergman. And I think I even might have done it because it's one of those things. Where, so, yeah, there we are. So if you came across the entire back catalogue of Monty Python, for example, yeah. on CD in a presentation box, would you think I should keep hold of this or would you think I should give it to a charity? Uh, or... I've got the entire... You mean the one which has got the, 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 the matching tie and handkerchief and the, and the soundtracks? Well, to there's the... that, but then every single, every single album that they did reissued. Yeah, I've got a, a box. I've got a collection. There's about seven of them. Something like that. Yes, why are you trying to give me that? I'm going to give you all of my stuff. I'm going to bring it all in on a tip. I don't have it in a box set, so if you gave me how that... How much would you pay me for them? My undying affection? No, how much money? I want money for it. 20p. Okay, I'm going to take them down to the local charity store, see if they're more grateful. By the way, <laughs> Tony and Enniskillen says, uh, all these years when eating out, I've been ordering chicken Maryland, when actually I should have been ordering, ordering chicken Maryland... But you know exactly, and it's. But if you order chicken Mer- Maryland, Mer- you know, what do you what do you say? And if you go into the the you know the corner shop and say I want a, a packet of Maryland cookies, they'd say you're ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Uh, Rose Stevens, uh, I'm writing to confess a willful act of code breakage. I'm a long term listener. Previous emailer, it just makes everything worse. On a date I'd rather not specify. Four friends and I went to our local multiplex to see the favourite. Our allocated seats were in the row just in front of the VIP seats. 
And as we walked in, one of our party suggested the unthinkable. Let's just sit in the VIP seats. And they see what happens. They never check. Yeah. I do it all the time. And just like when you find yourself bunking off school because your cool mate told you you'd be a dork if you didn't, <laughs> I followed my friends into the VIP row. Lovely, comfy seats and a horrible feeling of dread every time someone new entered the cinema. <laughs> The adverts finished and we'd only been asked to move up once and it looked as though we got away with it. Then an usher appeared and headed straight towards us. No idea if this is a regular check for the VIP seats or if someone had clocked our guilty faces and shopped us. But either way, it was a shameful experience. The usher asked to see our tickets. We handed them over. Like the kids who've been caught passing notes in class. Are you zipping up your bag while I'm reading this out? I'm just taking a couple of Nurofen because I've got a bit of a headache. She looked at them and politely informed us that we were in the wrong seats. Then, with infinite patience, she went along with our charade that we'd accidentally sat down in the wrong row, guided us down to her allocated seats. This act, I know, was unforgivable. A moment of weakness after a lifetime of code adherence, which I feel could be grounds for excommunication. So I'd like to apologise to the two of you, to the entire church, and particularly to the long-suffering usher. My only hope is that this can act as a cautionary tale for anyone tempted by code infringement, and I will take any penance you deem appropriate. Rose Stevens. But the question was, did somebody else sit in the seat? That doesn't matter, does it? She hadn't no. paid for the seat, so therefore she shouldn't have been there. Ooh, sorry, I can hardly hear you. You're so high on your high horse. Well, I think this is... If you haven't paid for the posh seat, you don't go in the posh seat. Mm. Isn't that right? <laughs> Are you saying you can? No, it's just you suddenly sound very... Well, I'm sorry, if they haven't paid for the posh seat, they can't sit in them. Although, to be honest, if this, if if no one else is sitting in them... That's why I was saying, is anybody, you know, was, was we were, you, were your buttocks where somebody else's buttocks should have been? And if they weren't, then, you know... If a tree falls in a forest <laughs> and no one is looking, does anyone care? <laughs> I merely mention it. Anyway, uh, it's time for DVD of the week. Bravo. You're <laughs> uh, right, Mark. I'm good, Simon. One of my favourite videos on our world-beating YouTube channel, is Mark Kermode Reviews The Wife. 20,587 views and counting. You were very nice about The Wife. Yeah. You said, there's some deep-seated resentment there. She has an enormous amount of promise. At the beginning of The Wife, you kind of understand everything you need to understand. A few months later, do you still like The Wife? The Wife has got to be the pick of the bunch for DVD of the week, The Rose Between the Twin Thorns of Housey Clocky Walls, and <laughs> it's back. I'd completely forgotten about I'd it. Forgotten that. And The Predator. Housey Clocky Walls. Bevan Mortimer, I thought The Wife was a bit of a cliche all the way through. The storyline not living up to the acting of Glenn Close or Jonathan Price. Can't see that Mark will choose the Housey Clocky film. I think he'll go for one cut of the dead, as will I. Robbie enthused about it, which is good enough for me. Martin Johnson, Predestination is one of those brilliant low-budget time-travel sci-fis that have been popping up recently, like Primer, Looper and Triangle. Well worth the time if you have the patience to follow the labyrinthine narrative, but lock your phone away with the other potential distraction, kids, pets, that kind of thing. Mark will pick The Wife. Patrick Krell in The Predator is just staggeringly misjudged. I recently rewatched the original, which doesn't put a foot wrong, whilst the latest film seems like an elephant on ice wearing roller skates. David McPherson, Love the Wife, brilliant performance from Glenn Close, Glenn, Glenn Close with an excellent script. Steph Franklin, Housey Clocky Walls is one of only two <laughs> movies I've ever walked out on, so not that. 
<laughs> and Nigel Milner, the Predator movie was my biggest letdown and my worst movie of the year by some way. One Cut of the Dead for me. What is our DVD of the week? Yeah, I'm going to go for One Cut of the Dead. As I said before, I was going to watch it last uh, week and I had uh, watched uh, Robbie's uh, review which with which I completely concur and it is now available on DVD and it is very good. I should say that I do still like The Wife. I do think that Glenn Close's performance in it is terrific and she is nominated for Best Actress and I think she might win... Um, do you think she might? I'm doing. I'm doing. Um, might Richard E. Grant win in his category? You know, I've got. A, it, okay, the weird thing with the Richard E. Grant thing because we were we were joshing with Richard E. Grant and you know saying oh yeah all these are, but I think that it, he. There is a chance. I mean, Mahershala Ali... Well, there's obviously a chance. He's been nominated. No, but I mean, what I mean is because the odds are, the odds are clearly stacked in Mahershala Ali's favour, but. <laughs> There are still upsets at the last moment, and I don't know, I've got a feeling in my waters that perhaps... Yeah, I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't rule it Would out. Would you bet your house on it? No, because I don't bet anymore after the, after the Great Reckoning. The Great Reckoning where you lost... Well, I won, but I, I won... won threepence, but you could have won. But I could have won threepence, yeah, exactly. It was... It was the universe's way of telling me never to, never to bet and saying, yeah, there we go, see, that's what happens when you gamble. Uh, anyway, it's Barry Jenkins next week, so that's a very, very good thing. Ooh, have you done it already? I have. Did he say hello? He did, actually. On his way out of the interview, he said, say hello to Kermode. Oh. Isn't that nice? I mean, I think it was a little bit brusque, just like you're at public school together, just talking by surname. But anyway, I forgave him for that, <laughs> as he is Barry Jenkins. Yeah, and you said, all right, Jenkins minor. And we haven't spoken to him for a couple of years, just before all the Oscar... Did you, did you interviewed him for Moonlight, is that right? Moonlight, yeah. Yeah, which was wonderful. It was. And, and I'm, I'm a, so I have to say, I'm, I know it's a bit of a spoiler, but I'm a big, big fan of... Uh, don't tell me, don't tell me. Of what? Don't tell me. Of what? Don't tell me. Of what? Don't tell me. Of what, though? You're big like fan of Gollum. What? Big fan of what? Don't tell me. I, it's, yeah, like Queen Anne, yeah, exactly. Big fan of well, Queen Anne. You're a big fan of big Queen fan Anne. Of Queen don't Anne. tell me anything else. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Roger Taylor... And I'm in love with my car. Bazza Barry I asked, Jenkins. I asked, Brian, I asked Brian, I asked all of them, I said, you have to choose the best Queen song, right? Okay. Yeah. Tie Your Mother Down. <laughs> it so isn't Tie Your Mother Down. It so isn't. Uh, I mean, Death on Two Legs is a better opener. But, so I said, okay. Brighton Rock. Okay, interesting choice. I think that I'm, I think I'm right in that as well. Really? Yes. Okay, you're not. The right choice is um, It's Late. Which is off. It's late. We gotta get you home. home. It's late. That's, that what that's exactly that one. Yeah, they do exactly that one. And uh, um, Roger Taylor chose. Uh, Don't tell me. Don't tell me. No, do. Go on. What did he choose? Roger Taylor chose. <laughs> Remind me. What Why have you gone into this loop? I don't know. What did he choose? Roger Taylor chose somebody to love. Rami Malik chose everything Queen have ever done. He just started listing Queen songs. And Brian May. Shows I'm in love with well, my car. Well, Brian May is wrong. <laughs> was he doing it and laughing? Yeah, he at the was. Same time. Yeah, he was. His tongue was in his wiry head cheek. Very good. He's very tall. Is he? Yeah, he's very tall. I don't know why I say he's. He's not wearing he clogs anymore. He used to wear clogs. I used to wear clogs. No, we all used to wear clogs. No, we didn't. In the 70s, I did. No, did you used to wear yes, clogs? Of course. Clogs were cool. Are you being funny? I'm not being funny. You literally used to wear clogs. Well, you know, the, the cool, trendy version of clogs. There's no cool, trendy version of clogs. Oh, there was 1973. I saw a mouse 
where they're well, they weren't Dutch clogs, they were style clogs. Style clogs. Yeah, style clogs from Top Man. Is that like Dr. Scholl's sandals? No. So Top Man never did clogs. Well, my clogs were cool. Yeah. I'm telling you now. Well, I said to Brian May, when did you stop wearing clogs? And he went, oh, because now he's just wearing sensible trainers. Of course, he's an old man. He's older than us. <laughs> he's still got more hair than we have. Anyway, are you back next week? Yeah, un- unless you know something I don't know. No, I think we're both here next week, along with Barry Bazzer Jenkins, which would be, be good. <laughs> Do you call him Bazzer in the interview? Do you go, Baz? I didn't think that would be very wise, really. <laughs> anyway, that appears to be a good point to... In fact, they should have faded us out about five minutes ago. I know. So thanks know. for listening. Comedy gold. BBC Radio 5 Live. 